Nick Lane is a biochemist, a writer, and a professor at University College London, whose book Transformer exposits on the origins of life not being so heavily contingent on RNA as many think, but instead in something called the Krebs cycle. Poetically, you can think of this as the difference between an information theory of life, which is the current dominant view, to one of the thermodynamic energy flow of life which is Nick Lane's view. As usual, click on the timestamp in the description to skip this intro. My name is Kurt Jaimungle. I'm a Torontonian filmmaker with a background in mathematical physics, and this channel is dedicated to the explication of the variegated terrain of theories of everything. That is, primarily from a theoretical physics perspective, so for example, grand unification and quantum gravity, but as well as understanding the role consciousness has to play to the fundamental laws, provided these laws exist at all in a form knowable to us. Two quick announcements. Firstly, there's a physics and consciousness contest on this channel, the link to which will be in the description as well as the thumbnail is over here. Essentially, it's the physics version of the three blue, one brown math contest, except ours is for physics and consciousness as well. If you have an idea for some explainer of an advanced physics or consciousness concept, then think about creating a video for this and submitting as you have the chance to win $1,000. Brilliant has come in to give 5,000 among the top five, so that's 1,000 for each. The second announcement is that there's a new theoriesofeverything.org website. This is a website where you can support Toe slash Kurt, which is me, instead of on Patreon because Patreon takes a huge cut as well as PayPal takes a cut. There's many different places that take their share. And as a creator, you don't have control over your donations. So for instance, Patreon may decide to shut you down for whatever reason they like. There are also a variety of benefits that come with being a member on the Toe website. For instance, you get an ad-free version of the shows that are coming out, an audio ad-free version. That is to say, you get a private link to the RSS feed to download the audio versions, and they come out about 12 to 48 hours, sometimes even one week prior to you seeing them here on YouTube. Just so you know, the way that it works is that I finish editing, and then I have to do another run-through and go through timestamps and catalog references and so on. That takes time, and what it means is that I put it out on YouTube and then I have a lag so that I can build up some hype and some audience prior to the premiere, but then that means that I've actually finished the episode a couple days before. So what I'll do is I'll upload simultaneously for the members an audio version, ads free, and then later it premieres on YouTube. For you as the YouTube audience, nothing changes. This is the way I've always done it. It's just that I have here an audio version for a little while prior, which I'm going to release to the Toe members as a thank you, and it's going to be ads-free. So that's one of the benefits. From this point forward, there may be mid-rolls, that is ads in the middle of a podcast. And that's just part and parcel of the Toe members, the Toe audience, you are sponsoring Toe, and then the sponsors also sponsor Toe, so thank you for your support. Those won't be there in the audio ads-free version for the Toe members. Second benefit is that you get discounts to any live events when we do have them. For instance, I'd like to do Carl Friston in London live in front of an audience. Same with Ema Gilchrist and John Verveke at some point. Another benefit is that there will be exclusive merch offered to the Toe members. Another benefit is that there's a number to text me. Again, if that's what you're into, we're testing this out for about a month. And yes, this is something where I am texting you back to your phone. Throughout much of this, you can see that the artwork here is exquisite on the website, and that's because it's been done by Boris Martinez Costello. A link to his Instagram is in the description as well. Thank you, Boris. Thank you so much. As for today's sponsor, it's Brilliant, Brilliant.org. Now, Brilliant has been with Toe since near the beginning. I recommend you check out Brilliant.org slash Toe if you're interested in learning math and physics and science. 
So Brilliant is a place that you go to learn about STEM subjects in an interactive manner. They have these bite-sized courses. It's extremely easy. You may think that special relativity is beyond you. No, it's not. It's something that someone can understand in elementary school. The way that Brilliant breaks down these extremely, ordinarily extremely advanced concepts is elementary. At some point, I'll be doing an introduction to information theory. In particular, there's David Deutsch and Chiara Marletto's constructor theory. And because I'd like to learn that, I decided, let me brush up on the fundamentals of information theory. And I took Brilliant's course just to do so over this winter break. Visit brilliant.org slash toe, that's T-O-E, to get 20% off the annual subscription. I recommend that you don't stop before four lessons. Just keep going until you hit four, and you'll be greatly surprised at the ease at which you can now comprehend subjects you previously hadn't difficult time grokking. Okay, thank you, and enjoy today's episode. Professor, thank you so much for joining me on on TOW. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Why don't we go over your primary thesis about how the Krebs cycle predates life, and perhaps you can contrast that with a reverse predominant view, which is that genes cause metabolism. Or genes create metabolism, or the conditions for metabolism. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is an argument that goes back, you know, decades in 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 work on the origin of life. Uh, and and you mentioned the Krebs cycle already. Um, those ideas also go back decades. This is nothing particularly new uh, from me. Uh, but uh, what's changed is that there is now some experimental evidence, um, and that's been lacking. So. I guess the, the whole field of biology has been obsessed with genes and information over, over, over since the 1960s, since the code was cracked. And, and the idea that uh, RNA, uh, which is the kind of the template um, taken from DNA, it, it can it can catalyze things. It can also supposedly copy itself. It can act as a template for itself and so on. So it's a beautiful idea. It's called the RNA world. It's been around for quite a long time now. Uh, and it, it kind of takes you further and further away from biology as we know it. And I end up in a place where, as a biochemist, I'm, 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 I, I just don't recognize the landscape. Um, so these ideas of metabolism first, I suppose the problem there is that it asks a lot of the environment. Effectively, it's asking one specific place, one specific setting to start out with something like carbon dioxide and hydrogen and not much else and to make everything from it. In the absence of genes, in the absence of enzymes, it, it's, it's a big ask. Um, and, and people who've argued this, Harold Morowitz, one of the great um, biophysicists who worked a lot on the origin of life, he, he, he linked it in with metabolism first and the Krebs cycle very early. And he was largely dismissed because there wasn't any, any serious evidence that it could actually work. Um, and now what's happened over the last five or six years is, is, is it's beginning to look as if it really does work. And it's not just the Krebs cycle, not as a complete cycle, but as a kind of a linear pathway with parts of it. It's not the whole thing. Um, but also other core biochemical pathways seem to just spontaneously happen. And they make so much more sense of the whole structure of biochemistry. And, and then also how it is that information comes into biology, because it comes in, it, it comes in in a context where it's already optimizing things that are happening anyway. And so there's, there's, there's a kind of a, a very easy shift to information and natural selection as we know it. Do you see the metabolism question or solving metabolism as being a biochemistry question or a physics question or a biology question? Uh, yes. Are those distinctions important? 
they are important uh, from the point of view of people's backgrounds. They're not important from the point of view of the question because the question is a question in science. The question is, it needs physics, it needs chemistry, it needs biology and geology and so on. And, and this is part of the problem, uh, that it's been a kind of collision of disciplines, each of which have you know, 100 years or more of its own intellectual history and ways of seeing the question. So I think the, the dominant way of seeing the question over the last, really since the Miller-Urey experiment in 1953 has been through the lens of chemistry. And what the chemists have tried to do is what synthetic chemists try to do, which is to say, you tell me I need to make a nucleotide, so I'm going to make you a nucleotide. I'm going to make you nothing but nucleotides. It's going to have a high yield. It's going to be pure. I can make you 70%, and I need to start with cyanide. Therefore, this is how life starts. Uh, and from a, from a biologist's point of view, um, well, you'd see it the other way around. You'd say, well, natural selection optimizes things that um, that, that you know were worse at the beginning, and now they're better because selection optimized them. Uh, and therefore, what we're looking for is a process that kind of works a bit, but is really very bad. Um, that means I want a low yield. It means I want low purity. Uh, you know, it, it kind of turns the whole, it would it would it would bring any any self-respecting synthetic chemist out in hives to try and do it that badly. Uh, but that's really what a biologist wants to see. What a geologist might want to see is well, what kind of an environment is conducive to. Um, any of these chemistries are, are there settings on the ancient earth that are conducive to cyanide, for example, or to CO2 or whatever it may be? So there's this, this collision really between disciplines and ways of thinking about it. And we can't all be right. Uh, and people have spent decades of their lives um, seeing, seeing a question from a particular point of view. And it's, it's very difficult for any human being to kind of step back and, and stand on a soapbox and say, well, I got it all wrong. I've just wasted the last three decades of my life. Often the answer is somewhere between, between different theories, different hypotheses. It's a bit of this and a bit of that, but you can't test that. You've got to be purist about what you test. Um, and, and you know, most of us are going to be wrong about most of it. And, and that can mean that you end up with quite unpleasant personal animosities between the researchers in the field. Okay, so the chemists or the synthetic chemists see that there are certain building blocks to life and they want to create those in the lab artificially or starting from simpler ingredients. And then the biologists say, no, well, look, if we have these ingredients, the way that evolutionary biology works is that we start from something that's less pure and then we work upward. Yeah, the real, the real, the real difference here, I suppose, is is that what the chemists have done is 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 it's as if you say, right, we need we need nucleotides, the building blocks of RNA and DNA. We need amino acids. We need to have fatty acids, the building blocks of membranes, and so on. Um, so 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 go make them for me. And the chemists go away and they make all of these things. Um, and they've they've started with CO2, but it doesn't work very well. The yields are low and so on. So they put that aside as unworkable chemistry. And they start with, with cyanide or something which is very energetic. But I mean, large amounts of cyanide. You're practically asking for an atmosphere which is just saturated with cyanide. And, and, and the chemistry works. It produces the building blocks of life. But by, with a starting point that no life ever uses, via pathways that life never uses, and so it kind of leaves you with the same question, which is to say, okay, so if that's how it started, 
then you end up with an environment that's got all these building blocks floating around. You've got the perfect primordial soup, but but then what happens? And there isn't really an answer to that. It has. You, I mean, you may as well say then a miracle happens. Everything has to self-organize. Um, whereas, uh, why does it invent biochemistry as we know it if that's the worst possible way of doing it? So, what what I have been looking for as a biochemist and and a, and a bunch of other people is do these pathways at the core of biochemistry happen spontaneously in the right environment? Not very well, just a little bit, but whole you know pathways with 10, 15, 20 steps in them that you might say, well, that's asking a lot of the environment. Can it happen though? And the answer is often yes. Um, at levels that were undetectable 20 or 30 years ago, but you know, we're in a lab. We're, 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 doing, we're, we're, we're looking at a very small subset of possible conditions and we don't really know what the right conditions are. So to make it happen at all is a big step forward. The issues with the synthetic chemists is that they can produce the building blocks of life, but then they don't show a way of how those building blocks interact in order to create life or that the conditions necessary to produce those building blocks are so unrealistic. Uh, to my mind, and the chemists, of course, would disagree, uh, and, and you know, we don't know so much about what the early Earth was really like, so they probably have a point. Um, but to my mind, the, it's not consistent with what we do know about the early Earth. It was mostly a water world, mostly an ocean. There was, there was probably one to 10 bars of CO2 in the atmosphere. It's highly doubtful that there was very much cyanide, if any. Um, perhaps there were some. And, and, and the pathways that they've come up with look nothing like biochemistry as I know it as a biochemist. And so even when you've answered the problem, you've still got to say, okay, so, so how did life start then? You, you've, you've got all the building blocks, but then what happens next? Whereas if what you're looking at is, a, is an environment which is kind of dynamic and continuously, you've got a continuous flow in, say, a hydrothermal vent, you've got a continuous reaction going on. And remember that, you know, we are we are a continuous chemical reaction. If you put a plastic bag over your head and stop breathing, then your continuous chemical reaction stops uh, and, and, and life stops. So we breathe, we have lungs, we have a cardiovascular system. We've got all of this sophisticated way of making sure this reaction is happening in each and every one of our cells. So take all of that away and say, well, how can you have a continuous chemical reaction that's happening, which is converting the environment into more of me, you might say, uh, and, and the answer is, well, you, you, need a, you need a dynamic environment, something like a hydrothermal vent, where you've got a continuous flow of reactive things that are mixing and, and, and reacting and, and producing structures right there. When you use the word pathways or biologists use the word pathways, is yeah. that referencing the step by the recipe that creates some end product? What is the word pathways? Yes, sorry. Uh, this a lot of people have seen a metabolic map, which kind of is like the the, the you know map of the London Underground or something. Except a, a whole lot worse. Uh, really detailed. Um, lots of names of, of particular chemicals with arrows going from one to the next one, and names of enzymes connecting up the arrows. So a pathway would be. You start with this compound, you end up with that compound, and there's 10 steps along that way, and, and you link them all up, and that's the pathway. That's a biochemical pathway, which starts with this substrate and ends up with this product, and it links them up in a way which all life does pretty much in, this, in the heart of biochemistry. It's universally conserved. Not always the genes or the enzymes, but the chemistry itself that underpins it is almost always the same across all of life. 
Ah, ah, so you're not just looking for the products, you're also looking for a similar pathway. Exactly. Or a pathway that's similar enough that conceivably with variation it could have moved onto what this exactly. is. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, and this this all together is 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 we're, we're talking about scores of reactions, maybe a couple of hundred types of reaction, all linked up in very specific ways, which we see in life, which is now encoded by genes. But the you know the question of how did those genes come to encode that metabolism is a really difficult question, unless you're able to turn it on its head and say, well, the metabolism happens first. All this all this network of reactions is spontaneous in the right environment and the genes kind of emerged afterwards and sped it up and optimized it and you know <laughs> improved it. Okay, and part of the reason why it's strange to think of genes first producing the metabolism is because the way that we think of genes is operating is sequentially and incrementally and these pathways are so well, it would it's difficult to think of half of a Krebs cycle or half of one of these steps as working. Um, yes, and if you if you take it that way, um, I mean there, there, there are various ways of thinking about this. But but how how does a pathway? Let's say you've got ten steps in this in this biochemical pathway, and let's say it's invented by genes. How what what do those genes do? So there's two main ideas. One of them is well, you've got plenty of the product in the environment. But let's say there are organisms out there and they're beginning to eat that product in some way. And so now there's less of it. So if you if you can come up with a gene which takes the precursor to that product and converts it into the product, then you've got a, an advantage. So you kind of start at the end of the pathway and work your way back one step at a time. Or you can do it the other way around. You can start with the precursor and work your way up one step at the time. But both of those ideas basically assume that all of the intermediates along that pathway exist at high concentrations in the environment and that you can get at them and that they are useful in some way. And you know, all of these are very hand-waving ideas and there's basically no truth to any of them. Whereas if what you're assuming is that actually the, the, the going from one to another along this pathway at a low level it just happens, you know, these things just interconvert into each other. There's not, and so at that point, a gene which, which speeds up any step will tend, to, will, will tend to increase the whole pathway. So it's much, it's much easier as a question in evolutionary biology about how, how do you then um, kind of ramp up because all you're doing is increasing the flux through a system that exists anyway. And where does energy enter into this? The way that I understand your the difference between you and how biology ordinarily thinks is with regard to information-based is the biological way of thinking, and then yours is energy-based. So I haven't heard energy come into this, and yes, I'd like to hear yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the way that life works generally, if you look at the tree of life, and this is another way in which biology has kind of intruded into the question of the origin of life over the last couple of decades. Um, what does the tree of life say about the very base, uh, the, the kind of bacteria that are the most ancient, the, the, the very first ones? They're not the very first ones. These are things with genes, with enzymes, they're pretty sophisticated cells. This is the common ancestor of all of life as we know it. And you could say, well, it's not got much to do with the origin of life. Or you could say, well, perhaps it points in that direction. We can keep an open mind about that. So what does it do? What do, they, what do these deepest branches in the tree of life do? Well, they're bacterial-like things, archaea and bacteria, um, and they're pretty much autotrophic, which means that they are converting gases 
in the environment into organic molecules like photosynthesis, except probably not photosynthesis. Um, and they're almost universally starting with CO2 and hydrogen. Uh, and that's the very core of biochemistry. You, go, you, you react CO2 and hydrogen and you get Krebs cycle intermediates. That's, that's the first things that you get. And from there you get amino acids and from there you get nucleotides and so on. The problem is that hydrogen and CO2 don't react very easily. This is the problem that the chemists had for a long time. You can heat them up, you can add a catalyst. It's, you know, it, it does work, but it's, uh, it, it's difficult. It's, it's only been in the last few years that people have succeeded in doing it. Now, what life does is it uses effectively an electrical charge on the membrane around the cell to drive that reaction. Um, the problem is it's, it's thermodynamically favored, which is to say, if you've got a mixture of hydrogen and CO2 and you mix them up at say 50 degrees centigrade, thermodynamically, you should get cells. It's actually more stable to have cells than it is to have a, a, a disequilibrium of hydrogen and CO2. They want to react so long as there's no oxygen around. But kinetically, there's a barrier and they don't react. Um, and, and that kinetic barrier is broken down by, by, by this electrical charge on the membrane. Sorry, just to clarify, when you say you get cells, you don't mean cells as we know it, as life. You mean that there's a membrane and it's oily and then there's a separation? or I, I mean that um, if you look at the thermodynamics, this is theoretical thermodynamics that goes back to Jan Amund and Tom McCollum, uh, and they have considered under the kind of conditions that I'm thinking about, this is 20 years ago now, uh, under the kind of conditions that I'm talking about in alkaline hydrothermal vents, at 50 degrees centigrade and alkaline conditions, um, energy is released um, to make amino acids and fatty acids, and overall total cell biomass releases energy from hydrogen and CO2. So, yes, it's favored. It's, it's actually energetically more favored to have literally cells than it is to have a mixture of gases. That's what's driving life. The problem is that there's a barrier to it happening. And that barrier is broken down by this electrical charge on membrane. So my kind of driving question is, <laughs> where did that come from? And <laughs> how did it get going? Why do you think it is that there's so much disagreement about the definition of life? So in mathematics, you just simply state the definition. There's no squabbling over that. Ah, but have you come up with a definition of life in mathematics? I mean, the answer is no. Um, it's basically, it's, it's, not, it's not easy to put it into an equation. I think that's... Uh, I, I personally think the, it's the wrong question because uh, life is a process over time. It's, it's not a thing. Um, and the origin of life is, is not a moment. It's not, there isn't one moment where something becomes alive. It's a continuum from prebiotic chemistry right the way up to you know, quite sophisticated cells with genes and macromolecular machines, motors, and what have you. Um, and, and every step along that way, there isn't one moment where you would say, it's now alive. There's suddenly something goes like that. And, you know, you, can, you could argue about, is a virus alive or not? I would say it is, but it doesn't have a metabolism of its own and it wouldn't fall within most definitions of life. What about jumping genes, retro elements, these kind of things? Are they alive? What about something which is dormant, a spore in, in deep space? Is it alive? No, it's not living now, but it could come back to life. So there's all these ambiguities about... I think what is living is a much better question. Uh, and, you know, it's very easy to kind of wave your arms and say, well, it needs metabolism, it needs information, it needs compartmentalization. Those things are probably true. Um, but 
but more than that, you know, you can, any definition that you come up with of, of life can usually be attacked. The, the, the classic one is uh, from, it's, it's known as the, the working definition of life uh, from, from NASA. And I, I probably can't get this quite right, but it, it's, it's roughly a, a self-sustaining system capable of making copies of itself or capable of evolving or something along those lines. Um, and I have a real problem with the word self-sustaining because it's basically sustained by the environment, by disequilibria in the, in the environment. But, you know, people have poked fun at it by saying, well, by that definition, a rabbit is not alive. Only a pair of rabbits would be alive because only a pair of rabbits could make a copy. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, so there's some arbitrariness to it because it's akin to saying, when does a grain of sand become a heap by adding more and more grains? Okay, yes. so then it would be better to characterize it as a real number rather than zero or one. Uh, it's certainly not binary, yes. <laughs> I mean, you might even say de death looks binary, doesn't it? But it's, it, even death is not because when we die, some of our cells will stay alive for a while longer. It, it feels binary and therefore the origin of life perhaps feels binary for exactly the opposite reasons. You know, you wonder about when, when, when does a, when, when, when does a, when does life begin in, in, in humans? There's terrible arguments about that kind of question. And there isn't mm -hmm. really a correct answer to it either. You know, if sperm are alive in some sense, but, but and a fertilized egg is, is, is alive, but it's not really aware of very much. But, you know, where do you draw a line of where awareness comes in? It's, it's basically an impossible ask. And it's, it's a matter for people to try and come to an agreement about, but it's, there isn't a definition. So a better question may be, when is living or what is living? I remember you said living, the word living versus yes, life. Yes, yes. I mean, living is an active process over time. And it, it's, it's, it's a continuous reaction that is converting um, the environment into, in one way or another, more of itself. Whether that more of itself is just replace the broken bits, or if it's a case of make a copy of the whole cell, um, or... or, or it, <laughs> Or, 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 or fuse with another cell and go through some complicated process of, of, of sex and so on. But in the end, life is effectively parasitizing the environment to make copies of itself. And it does that through metabolism. Okay, so two thoughts occur to me. So one is, yeah. is there a way to put a number, like I mentioned a real number, but perhaps it's not as simple as that. Is there a way to place a number to how much something is characterized by living? In the same way that you may say, well, consciousness is either you either have it or don't. But then there's some theories like Tononi's integrated information theory, where you have phi, which is like, okay, if you have a large number. Okay, so that's the first thought. And then I'll <laughs> say the second one, then I'll come back to them just so that I don't forget them. Then the second thought was, how far can we generalize this is so and so living? Because in the self-development world, when you read, you walk by the sections in the library, they'll say, yeah, you're alive, but you're not living. <laughs> you're not living your purpose ah uh, well that, that's that's kind of that's playing with semantics okay so that's taking it too far okay okay so let's focus on the first one is there a way i mean i'm using living in the in the in the in the broadest possible sense um in the sense of alive as well uh so 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 but you know con consciousness you know the, if you look at the medical literature there's all kinds of gradations of conscious states whether you're fully anesthetized or fully unconscious or in some lower level of consciousness and so on and it's you know, it, it, it's, it's worth looking at that medical literature every now and then to realize that it's not an on or off switch there either. Yeah, I'm super interested in speaking with you about consciousness. So we'll get to that <laughs> toward the yeah. end. Just so you know, I've been just absorbing your work for the past 
maybe two weeks or so every single day. And uh, I have my own Nick cycle. So people have Krebs cycle. I have a Nick cycle in my brain. <laughs> that sounds uh, sounds hard. <laughs> <laughs> so I just so you know, my background is in math and physics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't like biology because there's so many terms. Too many there's pyruvate, terms. There's pyruvic acid, which I assume is... I, I, so I can only apologize about my book. I mean, you know, it's... Uh... It's basically a problem with biology, and, and physicists always have this problem with biology. Yeah, um, and and it, you know it's understandable. Um, and and uh, there are, I think, the, the the most interesting questions in biology now really are questions in physics. Um, but because we've had this almost kind of phase separation between physicists and biologists, there's there's not enough people who are biophysicists who are grappling with the biophysics of life. And so biology has gone off in the direction of information, but without really a very serious grounding in information theory, as a physicist might understand it, uh, is really about, you know, just, just let's sequence the hell out of everything and see if we can find a pattern. Um, and that's kind of intellectually very shallow. There are patterns there, and, and we've learned, you know, almost everything about the world from doing that. Um, but it doesn't really tell us, you know, your question, what is life and what is living and those things. The answer is not to be found in in sequencing all the organisms. There's, you know, you have to take a step back and, and think about well, what is metabolism and what are genes and which came first and how do they relate to each other uh, and what processes on the planet are driving this whole process. And these are often questions in physics, um, but biology is so intrinsically complex that physicists very often get pissed off and back away and you know <laughs> they can't deal with uh, too much pyruvate. <laughs> yeah, there's a flurry of unmitigated polysyllabic terminology that it's difficult to become acquainted with. Like it's a more I, the way that I imagine is that you become used to it over time, and so if you first encounter it, then it's overwhelming. At least for me. But you and Michael Levin are responsible for turn and toe in this channel toward more to interviewing more biologists. Well, Michael because... Levin is doing amazing work, and 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 you know all this electrical fields controlling development is most biologists at the moment, if you say that to them, would probably freak out, probably back. I don't know what he said to you about this, but um, you know, he, he, he's obviously right. He's obviously found something which is really important. Um, you know, his Nobel Prize winning stuff he, that he's doing, in yeah. my opinion. Um, and, and it's profound. And this is the direction of 21st century biology. Um, and, and you, you know, it, it's trying to understand what, what actually is this language of fields in cells. You know, it's early days in, in terms of that. But most biologists still now would, would um, back away from it and, uh, and, and treat it in, in some way as pseudoscience or as, as you know, just not real. Um, and yet there's, you know, there's corners of zoology which deal with, uh, with you know, electric eels and electric fields in fish or uh, magnetic fields in, in navigation systems in birds and insects and whatever else. You know, we'd, biologists have known about this stuff for a while, not necessarily the development pathways, but it's a marginalized small corner where of a field of information in terms of gene sequences is completely dominant. And genes don't tell you anything about shape about structure you can look at any genome you want uh, and nobody unless they already knew what the organism was that's coded for there would be able to tell you what shape it is what, what kind of an organism is it 
like I mentioned, I have a Nick cycle in my head. So what I, <laughs> but I mean that in, in many ways, because I started bicycling more just to get your audiobook in my head. <laughs> so cycling is a great word. Certain words that you say strike me because your book is in my working memory currently. And you said 20th century biology is going to be the biology, sorry, 21st century 21st, biology yes. will be the biology of fields. Okay. Why don't we expand on that? Um, so, so that was right at the end of the book, uh, we're talking about consciousness, really, um, but, but also um, development and how, how cells know when to stop, know where to go, no, 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 you know, there's all kinds of questions that Michael Levin talks about. From my own point of view, um, I, I've been thinking for a long time about bioenergetics, that's my own kind of specialty. Uh, and what cells are doing in the mitochondria is effectively pumping protons across the membrane and generating a charge on the membrane, and that charge on the membrane is is driving everything else. Um, but I hadn't thought very much about fields as such, um, because to to generate coherent fields, you you um, would need to have quite quite specific morphology. Um, and it's not something I really worried about very much. But if you look at mitochondria and under a microscope, what you'll often see is, 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 is these, these membranes which are parallel to each other, which are offset by the same degree. And, you know, there's, there's a very detailed structure there. And the more we know about these structures, the more we realize that they play a really important role in how mitochondria and energy works. It's not a trivial thing. Those membranes are arranged that way for a reason. And, 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 and we realize now as well that the, 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 the motors, the ATP synthase, they, they're dimers at the end of these Christi, and all the rest of the complexes are in the middle. And so you've got a, a, a circuit going on. You've basically got a, um, an oscillating charge, um, which is going to produce a field. And we've got multiple parallel Christi all lined up next to each other. And if they're oscillating in phase, then these fields should be strengthened. Um, now we're talking in a language where, where, where you're much more comfortable than I am. But um, if you are able, and, and you know, things that have happened in neurology relatively recently, if you, if you cut an axon, for example, and separate it by up to about 40 micrometers, uh, an action potential can still hop the gap. You know, it's, uh, we've, we've known about the EEG for more than a century, um, the electroencephalogram. So we know that the brain is basically electrical, but amazingly, people don't really know where are those charges coming from. There's an assumption, which is that, oh, it's just depolarizing neurons. It's an action potential going down this neuron. It's a network of all these neurons all doing their thing. Hundreds of cells, maybe thousands of cells, all firing simultaneously or in a circuit or whatever. That's what we're picking up on. But do we actually know that? I don't think we do. The, the fields are quite weak on the, on the membrane itself. But inside the cells, we've got all these mitochondria with stacked Christi generating what ought to be quite powerful fields, um, which should interact with the fields on the membranes as well directly and, and, and interfere with whether or not they're sending a, a signal or not. Um, and this is a whole area of biology that, you know, the moment is hand-waving. We don't know if any of this is true, and it makes a very specific prediction about the orientation of membranes. If they're all offset to each other, then the fields would interfere with each other and it would never work. So, you know, there's quite specific requirements for this to work. Uh, but it, it's, 
it does seem to be oriented that way. It does seem to work that way. And then, then you end up with really interesting questions to me, which is, well, why the mitochondria? Why these fiddly things inside cells? Why not the level of neural networks? And, and the reason for me there goes, goes back... Actually, I wrote a book 10 years ago, 12 years ago, called Life Ascending, and there's a chapter in there on consciousness where I failed to answer the question at all to my own satisfaction, at least. Well, everyone does. You're in comfortable company. Uh, well, I, I, I was left with, with two uncomfortable conclusions. One of them was that, and this, I was really only reporting on what other people said. Um, one of them is that it's a property of physics. It's a property of matter. It's an unknown uh, uh, unknown property of matter. And when we know a bit more physics, then we'll understand what consciousness is. And so the sun is conscious in some way or another. It's panpsychism. And it's got a, you know, people like Roger Penrose and, 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 and Hammeroff and so on have been arguing along these lines uh, for, 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 for a long time. Um, I find it uncomfortable um, I don't really believe that the sun or the moon is consciousness, conscious in a meaningful way. I tend to think of it as a, well, basically a property of a nervous system. Um, so, but, but if you think of it just as a property of a nervous system, then, then it comes down from, from, from my point of view as a biochemist, you've got a depolarizing neuron, you've got, you, you've got, you've got sodium ions rushing in, um, potassium ions, you know, ions are changing around. Um, and that gives rise to a feeling. And, and a, what's the feeling in physical terms? If, if it's not a property of matter, what actually is it? And what, you know, is it simply, in, in that sense, an illusion that's concocted by a central nervous system? And I find that very unsatisfying as an answer as well. And it also kind of says that it's a property of central nervous system. So what did selection act on. And this is where Michael Levin's ideas are really important, because he's saying that no is much wider than that. All cells have these fields, all cells are communicating electrically. It goes right back to not just the earliest uh, animals, but probably back to single cells uh, critters as well. Uh, and, and then when you start thinking about, well, the charges in mitochondria are inside cells, well, my, mitochondria were bacteria once, they were free living once. And so the charges that they have on their membranes are, is separating the inside of the bacterial cell from the outside world. And so it has much more meaning. You can see, you can understand why selection would act on that. It's effectively telling you, how am I doing in the world right now? Am I, am I about to die? Am I, is something gone wrong? Is, you know, it's, it's a real selective value that this is kind of giving you an, an integrated real-time feedback on your state in the world as an electrical field that integrates the whole cell. Uh, and when you start thinking in those terms and you start realizing that, well, driving this reaction between CO2 and hydrogen at the origin of life requires an, electric, an, an, an electrical charge on a membrane. Um, and so electrically charged membranes go right back to the beginning. And it's the only way really of integrating the cell as an entity in relation to its environment. Then there's a beautiful idea there. I'm not really saying that bacteria are conscious in a meaningful way. It's just that there are kind of integrated states of their state of being in the world. Either they're doing well or they're stressed, you know, that kind of level of, um, of, of feedback. Uh, and it, it, it's calibrated by a field. And those fields are used during development to say, okay, now you've grown enough, now stop, now you're in a high or whatever it may be. And this is a whole language of how fields are communicating in biology, which is, we've barely touched the tip of the iceberg. Okay, let me see if I got this straight. 
So earlier we you mentioned that there's an axon, you can cut it and then you can separate it such that chemicals shouldn't be able to be interchanged between here, like neurotransmitters. Yeah, it's too slow for that, yes. So it'll just hop over as if there was no gap. However, there's still a signal and that signal is called an action potential? Yeah. Okay. And one of the reasons you think or people think mitochondria are important are because you use this word Christi, which I believe refers to the these are the membranes the inside folds the inside yes exactly yeah okay and the reason why these folds are important is because they have plenty of surface area even though they're small uh yes they they have a lot of surface area but they also have a structure and an orientation they're lined up in parallel very often uh, and and they they have a very high charge and ironically it's very difficult to measure that charge um why because why is that? Because if you're measuring the charge in a neuron, you can you can insert a microelectrode into a neuron, and it was all originally it was all done uh, with giant neurons in squid and things like that. Um, but but still, you can insert an electrode into a neuron. But remember, a mitochondrion is a small part of a cell, so it's much smaller than a neuron. Um, and and people have done this. People have inserted microelectrodes into mitochondria. And the irony is they've never really measured much of a potential difference. And the reason for that is almost certainly that what they, they've just inserted it into what's called the matrix, which is the main kind of bulk space inside the mitochondrion. And so they're measuring a difference between that and the rest of the cell, and it's not much. But then you've got these structures, the Christi, uh, which are very tight membranes, which is basically impossible to poke a needle into. Um, and that's where all the charge is. So to try and measure that charge is a really difficult thing to do. Uh, and people are getting closer to it now. There's some really clever, ingenious ways of trying to measure what exactly is the charge in this closed space, really narrow closed space. Um, but it, you know, it's 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 a very difficult technical problem. You can you can basically calculate it. You can show it with dyes, but you never really know what the dyes are interacting with otherwise. So it's 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 intrinsically difficult. Uh, okay. Do you imagine that this is a technological problem that will be solved in the near future? I hope so. Or there's some in principle reason why it can't be done. Uh, no, I think um, I, I mean it's just difficult, but I think we can do it. I mean, I intend to <laughs> give it my own best shot, but there's a few other people thinking along these lines as well. Now, the fact that mitochondria may be important for consciousness, does that imply that the bacteria which don't have mitochondria are not conscious or at a much lower level of consciousness than protozoa? Um, so protozoa do have mitochondria. Um, and, you know, you can see videos of the way that they behave, and they're astonishing. I mean, you know, watch videos of protozoa, the way that they move around and they, they go fishing. They do all kinds of – the control of their behavior is exquisite. Um, it's the kind of thing that you know should make people believe in God. It's just so beautiful. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not a matter of genes being expressed. There's something controlling this system, uh, which is which is happening in in, in nanoseconds. It's, you know, it's happening extremely quickly, and it, it's the whole cell which is doing this. It's not just one bit of the cell. It's not you know. Imagine you're a molecule finish the book this way. Imagine that you're a molecule, shrink yourself down to the size of a molecule, and the cell is like a city. Um, and, and, and where I am now, I'm in London, and uh, 20, 15, 20 miles away uh, through to Canary Wharf or Greenwich or somewhere like that, um, there would be other molecules. You know, the people over there would be like me as a molecule, as a pyruvate molecule mm-hmm, inside mm-hmm. a cell or something. So what is it that unites me with this person 
20 miles away in a cell? And, and, and the answer is, well, you know, in the city, not much, some kind of shared sense of identity as a Londoner or something, but you know, you know, you, you know that you're living in a city, but that's con conscious awareness. But in a cell where we're dealing with molecules, how does something happening over here happen over there simultaneously, essentially simultaneously, effectively 20 miles away, so that we're integrated in, in, in real time and doing the same thing? Um, now, fields can do that for sure. So how would you have a field that operates on the whole cell? Well, if it's on the membrane that surrounds the cell, and if what that membrane is reporting on is how you're doing in relation to the environment, because if you're, you know, if you're, if you're taking up food from the environment and burning it and using the energy to generate an electrical charge on the membrane, and there's plenty of food, you've got a nice charge, everything's good. Um, so it, it's telling you that the, the whole cell has got a nice electrical charge on the membrane. There's a nice field crossing the cell, oscillations of water molecules within the cell are kind of locking things in some kind of phase. And, and um, that is telling you about your state. If you move into an area where there's toxins or where there's no food or whatever it may be, then, then you're, 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 you know, they're going to interfere with how this charge works. It's going to change the field it's, and, and, and you're going to shift you're going to change what you do you're going to move over there you're going to set your 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 flagellum whirring or something you, you'll, you'll change your behavior but you do it at the level of a whole cell um, and, and what's integrating at the level of the cell in in my view now is is the the charge on the membrane generating a field which is integrating all the component molecules in the cell to act as a as a unified whole Here's one question. If we have one cell and it's, we imagine that it may have some proto form of consciousness because it's interacting with the outside. Okay. Yep. And then if we have two and they're interacting with one another, then we have a consciousness that is of the two as a whole. Um, not necessarily. Uh, if they're in, if they're locked in phase in some way, as they may be if with two neurons locked in phase in a multicellular organism, uh, then yes, they could be. But if they're not in phase, then, then they would interfere with each other in some way. There's actually lots of evidence that, for example, um, pollinating insects when they arrive on a flower can sense electrically whether or not it's already, whether the nectar's already been taken, so they don't bother to go there. There's, you know, there's interference that I don't know very much about, um, but you know, there's, there's quite a lot of evidence that the that, that animals have fields that are capable of interacting with each other. We just don't know a huge amount about it. And the idea that cells would do the same thing, I mean, you, you can see it under the microscope. We don't know exactly what's going on. I don't think we've ever measured it, uh, but I'm fairly fairly persuaded that, that fields would be one of the most powerful ways of trying to explain the interactions you see between single cells, yes. Now, this locked-in phase quality, I imagine, is also a spectrum and not zero to not binary, or is it? I know, well, uh, you tell me, you're the physicist. I mean, I, I would imagine that there's something of a spectrum, but but there's there's some element in which once you get interference, then you don't have, you would not have any locked in phase. What I'm thinking is that I'm imagining the brain akin to there's vertices, so there's points, there's vertices, and then there's edges between them, and then there's a slew of them, and then they're interacting with one another. And that any subset of these, not any subset, but there will be manifold subsets, so plenty, not manifold in the math sense, but man many, many subsets that will be in phase with one another at any given point in time. And so any individual 
comprises perhaps more conscious subsets than there are atoms in the universe if you do some analysis of how many subsets and so on. That is to say that Nick is not just one consciousness. It would be trillions if, or 10 to the trillions. Uh, well, I, but I don't know so, because I don't know what counts as consciousness here. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a neurologist and I'm not working on consciousness as we know it in human brains. Um, what bothered me, um, you know, it's a, it's a question in philosophy as well, is, 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 is if you've got, and, and it, it, it touches on AI and whatever else, if you've got an extremely sophisticated processing system, um, and, and the brain is an extremely sophisticated processing system, uh, does it need to be conscious? Is there some kind of emergence? And if so, what governs that emergence? Um, and it may be that that is the case, but I, I'm, I, I find emergence one of those words which is overused. It has a real meaning, but it's very easy to say, oh, it's an emergent property. And, you know, it, it basically says, I haven't a clue what I'm talking about. It's just it's a nice word. Um, so, so I had this problem. I, I, I can imagine the classical philosopher's zombie, which is capable of behaving in a perfectly normal human way, without experiencing any emotions or any feelings or anything else. And I can imagine robots and, and AI uh, being like that as well, capable of being enormously intelligent and, and, and having you know, conversations that would persuade us that they are human, um, but without feeling anything. Um, and so I'm back around to this question of, well, what is a feeling? Is it real? Is it a, is it a concoction of a central nervous system, an emergent property? What, what actually is it? Uh, and to my mind, um, natural selection always works on something else. There are simpler systems. So, it, it, you know, it, 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 so I'm perfectly happy to believe that a, a dog, for example, is not necessarily that intelligent. I don't know, but I, I, I would think it's consciously aware mm -hmm, and, and, mm -hmm. and, and capable of feelings, capable of emotions. And the idea that a dog will pine after its master's died or whatever is, you know, is a very familiar to most people. And, and, and it, it seems obvious to me um, that, that that would be the case. And from a biologist's point of view, why would it not be the case? Selection has to act on something. Why would one central nervous system be utterly different to another one? There's a matter of, it's a continuum again. We have a really high powered processing system, but our feelings, our emotions, you know, I, I think we've probably shared them with a lot of other creatures, and it's very easy to imagine that 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 you know a chimpanzee can be in love or can feel pain or or, or any of these feelings. They feel animalistic to me, uh, and we can nuance them with with all kinds of uh, intelligence and thoughts and language and whatever else. But the you know a feeling of, of of malignant sadness underneath everything else is it's 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 not something which is. You, that, that you have much control over or a feeling of just being overwhelmingly in love with someone. What, what, what can you do? You know, we have no control over these, these feelings. They're, they're, they're very separate almost from, from a parallel processing system. They can be overwhelming. Um, and so, so what, are, what, what are they? And, and this is where I think this language of feels and so on comes in. And I'm not saying that a, a bacterium is, conscious in a way that any of us would recognize i'm just saying it's the germ of a kind of a, a something which tells you about your state and which is not just it's more than the sum of all of these parts it's something which gives you an integrated feedback on 
am I, am I effectively sad or happy, you might say? Am I, am, I, am I content in this environment or am I stressed in this environment? That's the nature of a feeling. Okay, so to be clear, you're not claiming that this solves the hard problem of consciousness, but rather if consciousness was to have some physical explanation, perhaps we should look at the what's occurring at the cell membrane electrically? Uh, well, the, the, the membranes inside in the mitochondria and so on. Yes, I think that's the language. I think that provides a selective basis for how it began. I think it's, it, you know, this question about what, what purpose is consciousness in, in, in natural selection. If you think about it at the level of single cells, if you think that um, it's giving you this real-time integrated feedback on your state in the world, and whether or not you make a decision as a cell to go over there or to stay here or to depolarize your membrane and kill yourself immediately if you've been infected by a virus or all of these kind of decisions that you take as an entity, um, this is providing you with a kind of language for the entity. Uh, and it, 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 you immediately see what selection is acting on. And the hard problem in consciousness is to a large extent about what, what, what are feelings, what are emotions in, 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 in physical terms. Uh, and, and, and that's, you know, people have been talking about electrical fields for quite a long time in, in that sense as well. This is, again, nothing particularly new. But, but why that language? Why, why would electrical fields give you some kind of feeling of being conscious? When you take it out of the environment of a nervous system and put it into the environment of single cells and this real-time feedback on their environment, their state in their environment, then you, you see it's the only language which is going to integrate you as a unit, which is going to tell, tell the other half of the cell 20 miles away over there that, that, uh, that it's an, you know, your, your action is for the whole cell. And, and so when you put two cells together and, and, and you build multicellular organisms, you're using these fields to control the development of the organisms, as, as Michael Levin says. And then as you end up with a central nervous system, it's channeling more of that energy into circuits. And you know whatever the explanation is, it has to correspond to what we already know about neurology, about the way that neural networks actually work. And the, the problem I have, for example, with... with um, with Penrose and Hameroff and, and the idea that it's it's all uh, to do with um, with the microtubules, for example, is that it's not very obvious how they correspond to, at least it's not to me, how they correspond to what we already know about neurology, about neural networks and so on. Whereas mitochondria are completely integrated into that. Um, they're part of the neurons, they're part of uh, the depolarization of neurons, they can interfere with this electri electrically and so on. So they're, 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 they're linked in with the structure, I think, of the neurons in a, different, in a different way. The reason, though, that I came back to this and, and started taking it seriously, um, and, and you know, lots of people seem to think that I'm barking up the wrong tree altogether and should never talk about neurology again or consciousness again. Um, but the, 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 the reason is, is, is an interaction with a biophysicist called Luca Turin. Uh, and, and he came to see me a few years ago and was talking about anesthetics, general anesthetics. We don't really know how they work. Um, and and, and he, he was interested in xenon in particular, which is an inert gas, and that, it doesn't really have a shape. It's a sphere of electron density, so it's not obviously going to interact with any type of receptor. 
and all the different general anesthetics they have different shapes and different different chemical properties and it's not obvious that there's any kind of type of receptor that would deal with them all and, and it, it doesn't really have any chemistry but it can uh, transfer electrons and so it, it, it can um, interfere with electron transfer and what Luca Turin had shown which really made me excited is 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 that um, they do interfere with the transfer of electrons to oxygen in respiration now that doesn't prove it's causal that just shows that anesthetics interfere in some way with respiration and maybe if they simply suppress what the rest of the cell is doing that would have a knock-on effect on respiration you could you could say that that would be the case but they he didn't find anything else that a general anesthetic was having an effect on. And so if you put it together with what I was saying about the requirement for cells and the electrical charge on the membranes to integrate their, their state in the environment, then suddenly it, it, it's a rather thrilling idea. Um, Doug Wallace is another person who's been working on these fields in mitochondria for some time now. Uh, and, and, and again, is... <laughs> He's out there on a limb as far as biology is concerned. He's, he's one of the few people who's willing to, to talk about parallel Christie generating strong electromagnetic fields that are, that are, that are reinforcing each other and communicating uh, across distances. This is, not, this is not the language that biology is used to. And, and, and you know, Doug Wallace is, is, is very distinguished. And so people will kind of tol tolerate him uh, towards the end of his career talking about these things. Luca Turin is is uh, I won't say he's an outcast, but he he you know he's he, he's on the edge of scientific respectability, and it's not because he's not a good he's a brilliant scientist. It's just that he's saying things that people in biology don't want to hear. Interesting. Turin found that xenon interrupts or interferes with respiration, and when you say respiration, you mean cellular respiration with the transfer of electrons. Yes, which is to say, this is what's going on in mitochondria. The, the so you basically have a, a current of electrons going from food to oxygen, um, and, and, and gases like xenon interfere with that, uh, that, that, that uh, current of electrons. And that means that it makes respiration less likely to occur? And by the way, what is cellular respiration? I assume you take in oxygen, but I'm... I don't know if that analogy between my respiration. Yeah, you're, I mean, basically, you're, yes, no, it's exactly right. I mean, you're, you're, we're stripping electrons from food by the Krebs cycle. That's what the Krebs cycle is doing. It's taking electrons from food. It's feeding them into the membrane. And then we have a current of electrons in the membrane going to oxygen. Oxygen picks up two electrons and two protons, um, and, 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 and it, it, it ends up as water. And, and that and so so basically we we're, we're reacting hydrogen, the pro, the electrons and the protons. We're taking we're taking hydrogen from food. We're reacting it with oxygen, but we're not doing it in one step. That's rocket fuel. You know that's what's that's what's powering a rocket. Um, we're, we're, we've basically got a current from one to the other, and that that current is powering the extrusion of protons across the membrane, and that's what's putting the electrical charge on the membrane. So now we have an electrical charge on the membrane. And the orientation of these Christie structures is, means that this is a current of protons. It's an oscillating current mm. of protons, and that's what's generating the field. Is there a radio wave associated with this? Would Turin found that somehow yes. xenon is associated? Okay. There, there, there is, yes. Um, I, don't, I have to say I don't quite understand that. Please explain the significance of this. Um, 
Well, there's a funny story that he tells about that um, because the guy who, uh, I forget his name now, the guy who discovered the EEG in the first place, the electroencephalogram. Michael Cohen or no? No, that's different. No, no, this goes back much before. This goes, goes I, I just have on. different snippets of yes. the book in my head. I remember Michael Cohen said something like, no one understands. Uh, but he, uh, no, we're going, we're going back 100 years or more. Uh, to the to the discovery that the the brain is is generating electrical sure, signals sure. that can be detected with electrodes on the scalp. He was actually looking for radio waves. He was looking for long distance communications between people. I think he had um, he'd had some premonition that a terrible accident had befallen his sister or something, and I, it, it turned out you know lots of people have these premonitions that something terrible has happened to a friend. I have them as well, and every time I have them, it never turns out to be true. But you know, for some people, it, it's it's true. Is it true? Is it true because it's real, or is it true because it statistically it's going to be true sometime? I I don't know. I've never looked into exactly. It. Um, but but that's what he was interested in. That's what he was looking for: communication by radio waves between people at a distance of of maybe hundreds of miles. Um, and he discovered the EEG instead. Um, and and it's ironic because. The key, we're on your ground again here more, more than my ground, but um, there's, there's, there's a, an Israeli scientist who's shown that uh, electron spin, if it's passing through a chiral medium, um, ends up in, in, in the same spin state. So it's spin polarized. Um, and a chiral medium includes proteins because proteins are made of amino acids and amino acids are always in the, in, in, in the left-handed form. Um, and, and so all the, 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 the current of electrons that flows from hydrogen to oxygen goes through proteins in this membrane, and those proteins are chiral, and that means that the, um, the, the, the electrons that are transferred are actually locked in the same spin state. Uh, and, and when you lose that spin state, that emits a radio signal, and that's what Luca Turin has detected. You mentioned something interesting, which is that there's apparently a psychic phenomenon, unverified, or maybe it has been, but we don't know. As far as I know, it's unverified. Well, people believe they can communicate to one another. One of the reasons why on theories of everything, I don't mind talking to some people who believe they've done studies and they're excluded from academia for whatever reason. I want to find out the validity of those because I think that there may be something to certain aspects of what people consider to be paranormal that their explanation for why it works may be incorrect. There may be some physical basis. Like it's that we are obviously communicating right now. We don't think that there's any psychic abilities involved because we're just going through the computer, but perhaps something similar where radio waves are being transmitted. And if it's of a strong enough distress, then perhaps the person feels it. I think that science is intrinsically very conservative. And there was a lovely phrase from Peter Meadower who said, science is the art of the soluble, which is to say, problems that we can actually solve. So problems that we can't solve because we don't know how to go about it, we tend to put to one side and, and reject is not science. Um, and that goes for all kinds of things, um, including ESP and so on. Um, now, I, to my mind, there's two, there's two questions. Number one is, is, is it real? And then number two is, well, can we uh, then explain it? And I don't think very many scientists get involved in the question of, is it real? Um, it's, it's just not part of what science asks because it's not, there is, there, we don't have a, a, a way of answering it, um, really. So we don't ask it. 
Uh, now, so it may be real or may not be real. I, I, I don't know. I, I think there's another factor, though, which is that Occam's razor, which underpins all of science, really, which says don't don't multiply causes. Try and find the simplest the simplest explanation that explains everything we need to know. It may or may not actually be true, uh, but but it is what governs science, which is to say, you first of all take the simplest simplest possibility and and test that. And if it doesn't work, then try the next simplest one and work your way up until you end up with something mad. But um, but the problem with 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 anything like ESP is it's almost certainly not the simplest explanation for things. Now, if someone were to show that it's real and that it really is happening, and 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 you know statistically in some kind of trial, it would have to be with the power of a clinical trial, and then it's going to cost a lot of money, and it's going to rec- you know there are so many comebacks from people who are determined to demonstrate that it's not true, that that it would be a very very difficult thing to do, um, and. Then it boils down to personal experience. I, I've never really, uh, you know, I, I don't really believe in ghosts because I've never seen one or I don't see any reason why they would exist and I've never had any experience with them. But perhaps if I did, then I would change my mind. I don't really believe in ESP because I have these feelings that other people have that says uh, something terrible's happened, but then I phoned them up and nothing nothing had happened. It was and, just and a figment of my imagination. Why did something terrible happen to you? Uh, well, you know, it, 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 there's a simpler explanation, which is just that my brain is active. Um, right, so. Right, right. You know, you're thinking about someone. So, so, and probably for most people, most of the time, that's the real answer. So, I, I you know, I, I'm skeptical of these things. Um, but there's a whole lot more out there than than we know now. And I've been talking about fields and consciousness and so on, uh, and that is already pushing the barrel out for most biologists in terms of what are we willing to accept. Now, I think there's very strong grounds there for accepting those kind of things, and we can begin to push it into looking at other languages than genes. Um, but if I then start spouting on about ESP or something, then 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 you know I'll be cold-shouldered by the entire community, and I have no desire to go down that path because I have no strong reason to think that there is that exists anyway. Okay, I don't have a question, but I have a, some thoughts, so then I can just state them and then hear what your response is to them. So number one, when it comes to Occam's razor, I always find that a bit tricky. Unless someone's speaking about something in physical law, something mathematical, Occam's razor, it's unclear to me what constitutes as an assumption. So for example, in physics, the way that you say that a certain model is simpler is that you use less parameters to specify it. So it's actually quantifiable how simple a model mm, is. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why people say string theory is the most beautiful, because it can supposedly reduce it all down to one parameter. It's still one parameter. Like, there's no, you have, there's still some freedom there, but it's one, as opposed to 26 or so. Yeah. And then, so let's say the principle of induction in science, is that one assumption, or is that two assumptions, or three assumptions, because it presumes there exists a future and a past, and then I'm sure you've heard of the problem of induction. The point is... is if it's not mathematically stated, then to me, because my brain is so analytical, it's difficult to yeah. see, well, what's being assumed and what's not. Like, is God the simplest assumption? Well, then God has the trouble of explaining. Like, you can't predict from that. But God certainly is the most simple well, it's, assumption. Uh, yes. I mean, it depends what... Um, but then it's not simply simplicity. Is God five assumptions? Uh, well, I mean, as soon as you start wondering where God came from... Hear that sound? 
That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. You know, what, what gave rise to God in the first place? There's a lot of assumptions behind that. So something as, as profound and all-encompassing as God it re- requires in some way an awful lot of assumptions behind it. But then, you know, w- we know a lot about the world as well. We don't understand it all. But, you know, it's, it's definitely four and a half billion years old. There's definitely signs of bacteria from four billion years ago. There was definitely stasis for about two billion years. There was definitely oxygen appearing around two, two billion years ago. Um, there were definitely more complex cells appearing after that. We, we Animals certainly appeared around the time of the Cambrian explosion, 540, 50 million years ago. Um, and, and, and so, you know, any assumption that God did it would require either a deist God that set it in motion at the beginning and then it follows its own path, or a God that's kind of involved all the way along with every little bit here and there. And there's no, there's no need for that, as Voltaire said. There's no requirement to, for, for, for God to kind of get involved in this, this species of bacteria differentiating from that species. You know, <laughs> that's the level of detail he would have to be involved in. 
So, so there's no need for that hypothesis. Deism, um, I, I think, will be very difficult to reject for most scientists who had an open mind. Um, but deism, I don't think, is something that most people who are religious uh, would be terribly happy about, because I think for most people, God is communicating with them personally in, in one way or another. So the idea that there's an aloof God somewhere at the other end of the universe that sets, every, sets the laws of physics in motion and then steps back and is never seen again is not much of a comforting figure for, for most people. But, but frankly, what we know about the world if it's consistent with any form of God, is is more consistent with a deist form of God, I would say, than anything else. Um, so then th there are assumptions, and, and, and science works on these assumptions, and they may or may not be the simplest ones, but they underpin everything. And one of them is that um, it's naturalistic, that it's not miracles. That's not science. That's an assumption. We assume that um, that, that, that life started, uh, and and uh, and that we can understand the principles that govern the origin of life and and the, the, and the evolution of life and so on. It may be that there were miracles. It may be that it was delivered from outer space. There's all kinds of things that could have happened, but we make a simplifying assumption that it happened here on Earth and it happened for naturalistic reasons and therefore we don't call on a miracle, and that we can understand those naturalistic reasons. These are three huge assumptions that may not be true. There's nothing scientific about them, but all of science is built on those ideas. And, and, and the reason that I believe it to be true, and, and, and most scientists would, is that, well, everything we know about the world is consistent with that idea. So everything I was saying earlier on about um, you start with carbon dioxide and hydrogen and you get Krebs cycle intermediates and you have electrical charges on barriers in these hydrothermal vents, all, all of this is, is consistent with a naturalistic origin of life. It's a long, long way from proving that that's what happened, but everything I know about it is consistent with it sufficiently that I have some faith, and I'm using the word deliberately, faith that the gaps between the bits that I know a little bit about and, and, and this long spectrum of things that I don't know much about can be filled in in due course if we keep on thinking constructively in that way. So I, I think... You know, science is always based on assumptions and it's always based on some form of faith, which most scientists are very reluctant to use the word faith, because in a religious sense, faith very often means belief in something which which is, uh, you know, irrational in some way that, that, that it goes against the evidence. Whereas in science, faith is perhaps more about I have faith that there'll be more of this kind of evidence that will explain the way that the world is. It's a form of faith. It may or may not be true. It may be delusional, but... Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. 
No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories. It's very powerful because it's led to all the scientific advances that we see in the world and that leads people and most people to to begin to believe that science really can explain the world. And there really isn't a need for a God to explain the world unless it be a deus God that put these principles in place in the first place. And that, you know, that's the way I would see it, but I have a lot of sympathy with people who prefer a religious view of the world. There are, and I, and, and I certainly couldn't argue against the deist's position. I wouldn't say that it's a minority, the deist position. Well, when I say minority, I mean it's a sizable minority if it exists. Because when I was looking at the Pew research data on belief, I believe something like 10 to 20 to 30, let's say 10 to 30 percent of people believe in a deist God, of those who say that they believe in God. And that's right. sizable, because I thought it would be 0.02, like the Gnostics or some, yes, some yeah, yeah. strange I would sect. Ex- I would expect it to be smaller as well. Yeah, it's an extreme amount. And then secondly, that there's a sizable portion of people who believe that the definition of God is reality. So by doing <laughs> science, one is studying God. And it's not so... I used to be the same... And I, 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 I love that as an idea. I have to say, I, I, don't, I don't personally believe in God, but, but, but the idea that you know, people who have tried to understand the world in the past as, as the world that, that God put there... I have a huge fellow feeling with them that, you know, they, they were trying to understand the world. They were trying in some way to understand the mind of God. Um, it's what is nobler in this world than trying to understand these things and whether or not you put the word God at the end of it, it it seems to me almost a trivial distinction. Hmm. Hmm. I remember my grandma saying to me years and years ago that, uh, to her, God was the voice in her head that told her what was right or what was wrong. It was basically her conscience. And, and mm-hmm. I, I remember saying to her, well, I have a voice in my head that tells me what's right and what's wrong, and I don't think that it's God. And she was shocked and horrified that that, that uh, effectively I was saying, I don't believe in God. And, and, and it mm-hmm. hurt her deeply. Mm-hmm. And, and I've never quite forgiven myself. And, and, and you know, I, I'm, I'm very careful to try not to offend people because to me, it's, it's not very far away. It's, uh, it's just ways of phrasing things, ways of seeing things, and there's no need to be deliberately offensive to people when actually we, we, we may both see the glory of the world and want to understand it. Okay, let me get philosophical here for a moment. <laughs> I think that was about as philosophical as I can get. <laughs> I'm agnostic when it comes to this, so I'm not coming at this yeah. from a religious perspective, just so you know, so you can feel safe to, to surmise in any direction. What basis... So your mother... Sorry, your grandmother had a basis to believe in the in the to follow her conscience if you don't believe that comes from some higher place what does higher mean who knows for the sake of this let's just put that aside and assume that we can intuit that then why should you follow your conscience 
um, because our conscience has evolved in the context of society, of human societies, of groups, of human groups. Um, to my mind, at least, you know, there's, there's all these um, interesting questions about human evolution. When and why did we develop in the way that we did? When did the human mind take on the ability to be creative, to do art, to believe in gods and, and, and what have you? The things that we think of as human. Um, and it's not obviously to do with tool use, for example. They often, you know, the use of of uh, flints and things and spearheads goes back um, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, if not more than that, um, and didn't change very much over a long time. And, and, and things like fire, it's a little difficult to know exactly when was fire invented. And language is another thing that we tend to, as soon as we've got language, then, then we develop our minds in some way. The one thing that it seems to correlate with most interestingly is population density. This is work uh, that, that, that I, I know of from Mark Thomas, um, uh, who's, who's a colleague at UCL. Um, and, and, and that corresponds to human migrations. It corresponds to climate change, all kinds of things that we're, we're, we're very familiar with now. But if you have multiple groups of people that are interacting with each other regularly, whether it be through warfare or whether it be you know, much more uh, congenial interactions, um, those interactions are forcing creativity and ingenuity and, you know, sense of loyalty or tribalism or whatever it may be. And right and wrong can hardly help, but you know, it has to emerge in that kind of an environment. And it has to be very conflicted. You know, surely anybody knows that the people in the tribe over there that you've been brought up to hate are human beings too and have, you know, have everything that you have. Why do you hate them? Because your tribe brought you up in some way. You know, we are horribly conflicted. And our sense of right and wrong comes from this kind of conflicted feeling of fellow humans and loyalty to groups and whatever else. And no wonder we can't agree about it. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's grounded very deeply in, in our emotions as, as individuals in a social context. Let me stay on this philosophical course for just a, a few moments longer. So firstly, this assumption, which I believe is a great assumption, but it's, I do believe it to be an assumption that we're all human. The reason why I say that is that, well, human biologically, yes, but human also has a connotation of you being worth a certain amount and having dignity afforded to you and your rights yes. are the same as mine. That's fairly, fairly new. Genghis Khan, for example, well, many, if you just go back 1,000 years or 2,000 or 3,000 years, human is my tribe. You're not human. You're inhuman. You're subhuman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know enough history to comment on that. Um, I, I, I mean, I find it hard to believe that that we could have ever really have felt that way. Um, it seems. I mean, I, you know, culture and society will tell us that there are differences between people and racism and everything else. You know. <sighs> Has stained human history, but 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 it, it's it's kind of obvious, and we know now, you know, genetically and scientifically that, that there are essentially we're amazingly similar to each other as humans. Um, we we we're, we're evolutionarily very closely related to each other. We've diverged very recently, and we have all of these systems for you know categorizing people. 
And I'm part of it in the sense that I work in a university and I, you know, mark exams and things like that. And I'm very conflicted over exams because they, 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 they mark a certain type of intelligence and they give credit to, and, and, and you know, there's so many different types of intelligence that we're not adept at categorizing. And, and very often to my mind, the people who are the best researchers, they're not necessarily the people who do best in exams. They're the people who, who think about things in their own way and who are obsessive about the question and who, who, who keep on pondering it and don't give up very often. And there, you know, there are some effortlessly brilliant people, but there are also, you know, Darwin himself was probably not necessarily the, the sharpest cookie in the basket, but he 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 asked and kept on asking these questions and 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 and, and ended up coming up with answers that were more important than anybody else's. It is different forms of intelligence, and you know, Western civilization, Western culture has tried over 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 centuries to to categorize and to have a hierarchy and to put the white man at the top of the hierarchy. And it's so patently not true um, that, that it, it's shocking that it ever stuck. Okay, so then here's some more thoughts. <laughs> Again, a few questions, but just thoughts. And then we'll get back to some, well, these are biological questions. So we were saying that, hey, humans are so related to one another. And so it's difficult for you to imagine that other yeah. people would think of other people as not being human. But then to me, I was like, okay, well, we have another spectrum issue there because it's arbitrary where we define the line as being sufficiently different enough to not call human. And then secondly, it's <laughs> unclear as to what makes you, you. Is it purely your DNA, but it, or is it also the culture and the ideas that you that Of you course, possess? it's the culture and the ideas. Okay. And then if so, well, then what we can say is this tribe has a right to say that you're sufficiently different than me unless you convert to me. Um, I mean, this is the nature of human history, isn't it? It's, it is tribalism and it is, it is generating a sense of difference. Um, I mean, you could almost say that culture has, has gone out of its way to erect differences where they don't exist. Um, you know, I think individuals will always, if, if, if two people from any culture anywhere in the world are, are left as the only two people left on the world and are forced to talk to each other, they will realize they have everything in common with each other. And, you know, it's, it, it was true for practically anybody on earth now um, and, and always has been. But this, you know, this idea of human or non-human or, you know, it, biology is so full of continua, um, was a Neanderthal of human being you know there was plenty in common i'm sure there are gradations everywhere and there isn't a there isn't a, a cutoff point okay so then the last and i'll stop this digression the last point is that if we agree that tribalism is natural and is almost a universal then what if one's conscience led them in the direction of saying hey in order for my genes to survive, it's better that my group compete with your group. And my conscience is telling me so. So this gets back to the question because I was asking, yes. well, why follow your conscience? And you were saying, well, because it developed evolutionarily. Well, what I'm saying is, I uh, can imagine it. Yes, yes. In other words, you're saying it's wrong. It, it grew up in the context of tribalism uh, and uh, antagonism between different groups of people. Therefore, and I said, you know, the sense of right and wrong is deeply conflicted. And, and, and probably not a good guide to things. One of the, I think one of the great things about, um, I, I, I suppose the, the history of, of the, uh, from, from the Renaissance onwards is, is, is an attempt to break down some of these barriers um, to, to, to think 
in broad terms about what human rights are and what what what's what are humans you know it's been a very you know it admitted women for a long time it admitted different groups for a long time but but it was an attempt to to begin to give people rights and see people as as equal and this idea that we're equal is obviously again we're not equal we're not equal genetically we're all different genetically we're all unequal almost by definition that doesn't mean to say someone's better than someone else it's just different uh, and we come from societal cultural contexts which are different um, and which condition you to think differently about things and those are breaking down and and thank god for that we lose we lose things when they break down you know we 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 lose our 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 culture our tradition is that you know people lose groups lose languages it's a there's a loss to seeing humanity as a single unit a global family if you like there's there's all the all the cultural histories that groups have which are wonderful and often you know different but but similar um they can be engulfed and they can be lost and 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 it's in a way is tragic but at the same time if if what we do is cling to the the differences and the cultural things that set you apart from everybody else and and then look down on other groups i don't think there's anything in the in 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 biology that that says that that's the case um so you know what we need is somewhere in the middle where we where we 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 we're proud of our cultures we're proud of traditions but we somehow um understand other groups as equally human with equally valid and important traditions that that we live side by side together one of the lovely things about living in a place like london is it's it's often called a melting pot but you know different cultures live side by side i won't say happily but reasonably happily people from countries that are at war elsewhere in the world will will rub shoulders together in a place like london and get along together okay and 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 maintain something of their culture and their own sense of identity and self-worth without without hating everybody else okay let's get back to the book this is a great transition because <laughs> right. you mentioned we should it would be great if we thought of ourselves as a part of a larger whole in the beginning of the book I recall there was an analogy made between a city and a cell and saying, okay, let's zoom out at a helicopter view and look at a city and it looks akin to a cell. Perhaps a cell is, well, I think a cell is, well, I don't know if that's true, but. It doesn't look much like a cell, but I, I, yes, I, I mean, I was, I was, I was uh, comparing it because there's plainly there's metabolism, there's movement, there's, there's all kinds of things happening in the city. Yes. And then there was a line that said, the cell is living, potentially, the cell is living, but it's, but obviously the city is not something like that. Obviously, and yes. I was thinking, is it? Is it obviously that the city is not? Like, what makes something living? Is it just? Yes, exchange, and is yes, it something yes. that this is it obvious that the city is not its own conscious being? If if one of our neurons has some proto consciousness, but then the collection of them also have a larger consciousness, are we a part of a larger consciousness, or is it slow transmission speed? Yeah, what you're back to there really is is, is consciousness an emergent property of a sufficiently complex system. Uh, and, and what I was arguing earlier on is that it's not um, that that it's it is a property of an extremely complex central nervous system, but but what it wasn't an emergent property from it. It was it was something which was an integral part of that complex system from the very beginning. 
I was talking about the language of electrical fields and cells and so on. And this is what has been has been ramped up. And so the the very um, complex feelings and so on that we have now are are effectively they've been through a process of natural selection. They have real meaning for us because they've really been selected. We really do. It really does matter um, if you're starving or if you're if you're if you're uh, dying of thirst or if you are you know in, in in love or whatever it may be the, the, these feelings are real because they've been through essentially you know uncountable generations where they bore some resemblance to what happened to you what to people to animals to organisms in their lives that if you if you have this overwhelming fear of something and you run away you will do better if this overwhelming sense of something um, has a selective value and at the level of single cells it has a selective value just in terms of integrating the cell as a unit as something which can physically go over there rather than have this flagellum firing that way and this one going another way you know what what integrates this system mm-hmm. um so 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 you you have a you have a system which is capable of a of a, of a, of a purpose if you like to read too big a word into it. Um, and, and, and that has been honed by selection and ends up in a central nervous system. But it's not an emergent property. It's something which was built in from the very beginning and has just been, been kind of raised as part of the edifice. Uh, now, from, the, from that point of view, a city, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't been through generations. It hasn't given rise directly to an offspring city. It hasn't competed. It hasn't died. You know, it's, it doesn't... It doesn't have any of these biological mechanisms of selection. So I think any biologist, and maybe we're very limited here, but any biologist would immediately say a city's not alive as I did. Any physicist would probably say, well, hang on a minute. Do you, are you really so confident that you know what life is, that you can say that a city is definitely not alive? Um, and, and that boils down, you know, I had a the subtitle of an earlier book was Why is Life the Way It Is? And, and, and the question to me is actually a, a really serious question, which is, does it have to be this way? Is it, or could it have been a different way? Could we have Fred Hoyle's Black Cloud? Could, we, could a city be alive? Can, uh, can, can, can AI become alive? Um, you know, they're, they're very interesting, difficult questions. Um, and, and unless we understand, I think there's two ways of going about it. One would be to say, oh, you've got a closed mind and you're, 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 you're a biologist and you're thinking about carbon and you're thinking about cells and, you know, open your mind and be, be you know, open to other possibilities. Yeah. And, and, and the other way of seeing it is to say, well, I, I don't know. Does life have to be these things? We know the only example of life we know is life here on Earth, and we know that it's carbon-based. We know that it's cellular. We know it, it, it thrives in water. Um, so did it have to be that way, or could it have taken a different turn? Or could we, you know, if we understand why life is carbon-based, then we can begin to say, well, life has to be carbon-based, or no, it doesn't have to be carbon-based, or, or some spectrum in between. Um, and, and I, you know, this is where physicists will very often, by temperament and by training, split off from biologists because physicists will want to see the universe as almost infinite possibilities with a very small number of laws governing it. 
And a biologist will want to see, study the example that we have in front of us, realize there are no laws, but there are some principles that guide us. There, you know, there are no laws in biology. Um, and so it's fuzzy and it's, it's, uh, it's immediately irritating for any self-respecting physicist. But that doesn't mean to say that there isn't something to understand from life on Earth as we know it. And, and there's, you know, this, the, the origin of life field has, in a strange way, almost tried to ignore what life actually is <laughs> that we know about. And, 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 and to my mind, it, 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 if we were to find life on a thousand different planets, Throughout the throughout the, um, the the Milky Way or something, um, then just because carbon is so good at the chemistry that it does, because it's so abundant, it's one of the most abundant elements in the in the universe. It, it it it's really good at producing molecules that are quite large. Water is also extremely abundant, and it's all, it does very interesting things with organic molecules. You can have membranes that are not soluble, and you can have proteins that are soluble. It, it, you know, there's, there's a wealth of possibilities there. So you, you take into consideration the abundance and how good it is at doing this chemistry. And then you think, well, you know, is, is there an important distinction between an outside and an inside? Do you need a compartment? Uh, and, if, and if you're going to keep your inside different to your outside, stuff has to come and go. Does that give a size? Are there constraints on how large something can be and how active it can be? Um, obviously, there are. You don't need to really understand exactly what governs those constraints. But plainly, there's a difference between an inside and an outside. And before you know it, you've argued that life is likely to be carbon-based and likely to be cellular and likely to be on a, a planet with water and so on. Uh, and, and maybe there are other ways of doing it, but 995 times out of 1,000 is going to be a bit like this. So let's talk about life on other planets, potential life. An interesting phrase that people say when they speak about life is life as we know it. I always found that to be interesting. Life as we know it. Because again, like coming from math, you just have the definitions. You just say, here are the necessary and sufficient conditions, and then that's it. To say some, so-and-so as we know it implies that there could be something else why, by as what we basis will we have to call that life? It's as if we have an intuitive feeling as to what life is, and we point to certain examples and say, this is living, this is not living. We haven't quite captured it with our explicit language, but it's there implicitly. That's the only way that I can make sense of life as we know it. But anyway. I mean, I think, that, I think there's an emotional charge to that phrase. Life as we know it says, out there, there is life as we don't know it, or there may be life as we don't know it. And, and, and our little limited experience is really just a tiny kind of bit of the, the universal possibilities. I, I think we, we all, as human beings, thrill to the idea that there could be something majestic out there, life as we don't know it, something much bigger than the human mind to consider. And, you know, God would probably fall into that category. But, um, but that's kind of make-believe in some sense. Because it, it, it doesn't ask the question, so, so what would it be like then? What are, the, what are the principles that govern life as we know it? And, and, and are they binding principles or are they uh, loose? And could, could it be many other different kinds of ways? And, you know, it's, I think one of the most powerful ideas in biology is, is natural selection. And, and, and again, a lot of physicists have a, a problem with natural selection because it's just so damned simple and easy. And it's hard to believe that, that something as trivial as that can be as profound as that. Um, and, uh, but but it it's becomes amazingly complex. It becomes <laughs> the stuff that 
that can be explained by 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 how selection works is genuinely astonishing. It, it's so rich as an idea. I mean, you, you're talking about ideas in physics that the, the, the fewer parameters you can boil it down to. I mean, natural selection gets it down to very few parameters uh, with, with enormous possibilities and reach. Um, and, and, and biology as a discipline has spent, you know, 100 years or more thinking about, well, how does selection actually work? What are the units of selection? Is it acting on genes, on cells, on organisms, on groups, and, and so on? And, and I would say we, we have a fairly decent understanding of a lot of it. Um, and it's, it's um, you know, it, it's, it's capable of... It's, it's capable of amazing feats, but the actual processes underlying it are, 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 are quite simple and rely in, in the end on forms of copying. And Richard Dawkins has talked about memes and so on. And, and, and yes, they, they can copy and cultural, cultural evolution can happen, but it requires the units of living people underneath it with a central nervous system, which is capable of propagating a meme and so on, or a computer, which is capable of, in the end, making copies of itself. So, you know, AI can come alive. I have no no real doubt about that. But I don't think that a planet can bootstrap itself up from nothing to give AI kind of without, without the intermediary of humans along the way, or, or, or at least complex animals capable of, because I don't think that silicon as a tool is ever going to get beyond sand uh, on a planetary scale. Carbon is so much better at what it does. It may be limited compared to silicon in the end in terms of processing power, but but in terms of how do you start, you know, what you have with, with, with carbon is a Lego brick. You have CO2. It sits there in the atmosphere. You pluck it out of the atmosphere and you build your these amazing Lego kits, which is life. Um, and, and with silicon or something, you're dealing with a pile of sand. It just it doesn't work at the same level. We can fashion it so that it works as life, but it's never going to come alive by itself. Hmm. When I was younger and I was watching the Discovery Channel, there was, I remember hearing this phrase that, hey, if life exists on other planets, maybe it's silicon-based because silicon serves the same purpose as carbon. I don't know. I'm, I was too young to understand what that meant. And I haven't followed up on that since. You just reminded me of it right now. So is that indeed true or not? That silicon's just as versatile? Um, no, it's not nearly as versatile. And that's the problem. I mean, carbon forms much stronger bonds than silicon does. It's capable of forming much more interesting molecules than silicon ever can. Uh, and silicon, for the most part, forms silicon oxides, which are uh, sand. Um, and, and they're basically giant macromolecules that, that a single grain of sand is an enormous number of atoms in it. And it's just a repeating pattern of those atoms. It's a, it's a giant crystal. It's not a building block. A single CO2 is a building block. You, you know, it's, it's like a brick. Um, it's, it's your Lego brick. Whereas... Uh, you, you know, I suppose trying to build from silicon would be like trying to build from enormous piles of Lego and try to put two piles together and fashion it into some kind of unit. I recall you saying that the fact that bacteria are limited in size, on Earth at least, has some implication for life in the universe. And I don't remember the line of reasoning. So please, if you know what I'm referring to, can you expound on that? Yes. I mean, it's really an observation. On Earth, that bacteria are—they're not always tiny, but they're mostly, to a first approximation, they're small. They're—they're they're a couple of micrometers long, and 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 that—that's that's that's it. Um, and when you look at them under a conventional microscope, you don't see very much going on. Um, 
Now, in terms of their biochemistry, in terms of the molecular machines and all of these things, they're enormously sophisticated. In terms of their genomes, they've got a different structure to their genomes. So a single E. coli cell might have about 4,000 genes, and we have about 20,000 genes. But an E. coli has what's called a metagenome, which is to say other E. coli have different genomes and they swap genes among themselves. So an E. coli might have a kind of access to a genome of 30,000 genes, which gives it a lot more scope for changing, for evolving, for, for, for switching about. Um, but it means that no two E. coli are exactly identical to each other and they all have a small genome. And, and, and that tends to mean that if you try and build a multicellular organism from cells that are genetically different to each other, then what you end up with is a, you know, a fight, basically, that would put fights between different human groups where we're basically genetically close to identical to each other um, in the shade. You know, what we're dealing with cells that are you know, <laughs> utterly different to each other, more difference between two E. coli cells and the entire vertebrate kingdom. Um, Interesting. It's, I didn't know that. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's huge differences. You, you put them together and try and you're never going to make anything as complex as a flea out of bacterial cells because they don't have a large enough genome. What we do is we have a large genome and we switch these genes on in the brain and we switch those genes on in the kidneys and these genes in the, in, in, in the heart and so on. We're all genetically identical, but we switch off different genes in different. Now, to get a genome that's that big requires, I think, the kind of radical restructuring of genomes. And the reason for that is that any giant bacteria that we see, and there are a few around, they always have thousands of copies of their complete genome dotted right next to the membrane. And it seems that they're there because they, they need to control this electrical charge on the membrane, which is, which is the charge, which is, I'm saying is, is responsible for consciousness, but it's responsible for driving CO2 fixation and for making energy, the currency, the, the ATP currency of life and so on. It's, it's used for pretty much everything. And it's a charge which is enormously strong. So if you shrink yourself down to a size of a molecule again, and uh, the electrical field strength that you would experience if you were sitting next to that membrane is 30 million volts per meter, which is equivalent to a bolt of lightning. Uh, so it, we're dealing with a membrane which is five millionths of a meter thick, five nanometers thick, um, five, five millionths of a millimeter, sorry, thick. Um, so 10 to the minus nine of a meter. Um, so so it's enormously thin, and, and the charge across it is about 100 millivolts or 150 millivolts or something like that, and, and, and it, but, it, but, but as a field strength, that's very high. You need genes to control that. They need to be next to it, and the problem with bacteria is if they try and just expand up, you end up with this enormous cost of having all of these genomes sitting next to that. Now, what we have with mitochondria, we have the same, what's called extreme polyploidy. We've got thousands of copies of the mitochondrial genome, but they've been whittled down to almost nothing. There's only, um, I mean, there's, there's, I think, uh, 38 genes in, in the mitochondria left in, in humans, uh, and they only are encoding the machinery and the proteins that are doing respiration. That's it. So they're basically, you could think of them as the same power as a bacterium to, 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 to generate energy, but without all the overhead costs that a normal bacterium would have. So we've got multibacterial power, like multi-horsepower or something. 
Um, and, and what that allows us is to have a, a swollen nuclear genome with, with 20,000 genes and lots of regulatory capacity and lots of energy for expressing those genes so that we, we can make tens of thousands of copies of the protein rather than just a thousand copies or something. So we, 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 we can scale up in a way that is, is basically impossible for bacteria. And, the, and that came about as a result of an endosymbiosis, which is to say one cell gets inside another cell, which is pretty rare in itself, and it has to survive there. And it, you know they have to get along. So the whole history of complex life on Earth is a history of, of um, antagonism and cooperation and eventually overcoming the obstacles and the hurdles and, and, and becoming integrated as a, as, a, as a functional unit. I didn't realize that there were only 38 genes in the mitochondria. That sounds so tiny. It's very few. And, and for that reason, they're, they're mostly ignored. So, so the people who work on the human genome, 20,000 genes, you want to sequence the genome, look to see which genes are responsible for diseases. People do what are called GWAS studies, which is a genome-wide association studies. So you, you look for this, this single letter change here or that one there is associated with epilepsy or Alzheimer's disease or whatever it may be. And maybe there's, maybe there's a few hundred of these, that are, or maybe there's thousands or millions of them, but a few hundred may, may kind of crop up and you say, ah, people who've got that letter change there are slightly higher risk of Alzheimer's disease. And if they've got this one as well, it's a little bit more. And people ignore the mitochondria, but the mitochondria are, are what makes us alive. It's, it's the difference between just information uh, and, a, and a living system where it's growing, where it's capable of, of, of powering all the work that cells need to do. You get anything wrong with those genes or they don't work properly with a nuclear background and you've compromised the entire living system. So they, they are, there's not many of them, but they are the most important genes for making us who we are, you may say, for making us alive, for, 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 being, <laughs> for being here at all. And mitochondria, they have DNA or RNA? They have DNA. Yeah. They have RNA as well, but uh, they, 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 the, the genome is made of DNA. The blob of, of DNA in the nucleus, is that called nuclear DNA? Yes. Okay. So there's mitochondrial DNA, there's nuclear and DNA. And nuclear DNA, yes. All right, all right. And they better work together. Right, right, right. I, I read that there was some, I, in your book, that there was some compatibility condition between the mitochondrial DNA and the nuclear DNA. And I think Doug Wallace was investigating this and he took mice yeah. DNA and, and put it into hamster. Uh, yeah, that was, that was quite a long time. And lots of people have done, have done similar work since then, but even within, you know, so, so some of my own work is on Drosophila, uh, different groups of Drosophila. Um, we're all within the same species, but if you kind of mismatch their mitochondrial DNA to, to the nuclear background, then it, it increases the risk of all kinds. I mean, basically the, the rate at which some flies age compared to others or how fertile they are. There's, there's, there's various kind of phenotypes. And exactly the same principles should apply to humans as well. And somehow this is a driving force, or at least it's proposed to be a driving force behind speciation. And I don't recall how that line of reasoning went. Do you know um, what I'm referring to? Yes. So 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 the idea, and this is uh, this is... I won't say it's a speculative idea, but there's there's not very much evidence that it's really true. But it's a it's a very interesting idea. Um, so, in effect, if because mitochondrial genes evolve much faster than genes in the nucleus, about ten times faster on average, maybe more, maybe fifty times faster, we don't actually really know. 
Um, but they're they're changing very quickly now. There's this this selection happening in the female germline. So whenever um, whenever new oocytes egg cells are being made, there's a process of of um, effectively winnowing out the bad mitochondria and and and, and bringing the, the the better mitochondria together. And, and an egg cell has as many as half a million mitochondria and copies of mitochondrial DNA in that egg cell. Uh, and they're all as close to a clone as it's possible to make them without, without kind of killing yourself in the process. Um, and, and, and these genes are evolving very quickly and can effectively fail to interact properly with the genes in the nucleus. So if you imagine two populations that are diverging, you know, standard idea of speciation as two, as two populations are on different sides of a mountain and they they, they they don't mix for for you know thousands of generations or something uh, and then and then they come back together again and they mix and so which genes are going to be involved so sometimes they'll intermix perfectly well and other times there will be um, some kind of it's called hybrid breakdown basically the, the the offspring this is the the standard biological definition of a species is if you can't produce viable offspring if the offspring are sterile or, or, or uh, don't develop properly, then you've, you've got two different species. Very often different species can interbreed perfectly well. This is a very bad definition of a species. It's another example in biology where, where there isn't a firm definition. Um, they're just, just separate. Now, the genes that are evolving the fastest and changing the fastest, the mitochondrial genes, are the ones that are most likely to cause trouble in those circumstances. They're the ones most likely to not work well with the nuclear background of the other population from the other side of the mountain. This is the idea. Um, and, and so incipient speciation may be driven by the rate of change of the mitochondria, which may, you know, if these guys live in a hot climate and these guys live in a cold climate, then maybe the mitochondria are specialized to different tasks and that can drive these differences. What we found with, uh, with, with, with flies, interestingly enough, is um, that the, you, you can end up with 50 or 60 different letter changes in, in mitochondrial DNA, which is quite a lot. Um, and whether or not you have observable problems, for example, not developing properly or aging very quickly or not, doesn't depend on the number of the differences. You might expect that there'd be a correlation. If you've got 50 50 letters different, then, then it's more likely to go wrong than if you've only got five letters different. And that's not the case. What we actually find is it's an absolute flat line that if you've got five letters or one letter difference, it can cause some catastrophic problems if they're bad letters. And if you've got 50 letters difference, um, then, then uh, it, it, is, it, you know, it, can, it can be catastrophically bad or it can be fine. There is not necessarily any worse. And this, these are the levels of differences that we see across humans as well. There is no, you know, there, there is a possibility that different human races could interbreed and then produce, produce offspring that were not functional. No one's ever seen it, but it's, it's a theoretical possibility. But this work seems to say, no way, that's not going to happen because we can see individuals who have a problem because there's an unfortunate mismatch and incompatibility that we've always known about these things. Two people just don't work together for whatever reason. Um, but it's nothing to do with, with races or with speciation. 
Once you've got really deep divergence, say between a mouse and a rat or something, or between a chimpanzee and a human being, then you would see then you would see so now we're dealing with thousands of different thousands of letter changes difference and, and and then you begin to see that there really is some kind of breakdown but within within populations that are basically homogeneous as the human populations are we don't see those changes how many letters make up the mitochondrial dna do you know approximately <laughs> Um, it's about 18,000, 18 to 20,000. Oh, wow. Great, 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 great yeah. memory. Okay. And then DNA is drastically more, sorry, nuclear DNA is far more. Oh, uh, we're dealing with about 3 billion then. Okay. Why is it so strange that certain mutations, so certain letter changes in the mitochondrial DNA produce horrible effects, but then certain other changes don't? Because that sounds the same as nuclear DNA. And you were saying like, oh, it's, it's so strange yeah, that one yeah, or two letters yeah. off here, but 50 letters... Well, that troubled me a lot, and I didn't understand it. It's not what I expected. Um, and I actually find it quite welcome in a strange way, but it took me a long time to understand why, what's going on there. And, and I think the reason is that there has to be quite a lot of tolerance for different types of mitochondrial function. So women and men are different in 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 in, in, in dietary needs, in, in outputs of one sort or another, in metabolic rate. On average, men have about 20% higher metabolic rate than women do. Um, so there are all these, there are all these differences. And, and the mitochondria, we inherit them from our mothers only. Um, and that means in principle that they adapt to being in, 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 in the female line and, you know, your mitochondria, my mitochondria, they're going nowhere. If you have kids, then, then they're not going to get your mitochondria. Your mitochondria are going in the bin. Um, and that means that uh, th they can never really be fashioned to work, to, to be adapted to being in men. Um, now, the nuclear background can kind of fashion them to work in men. And the Y chromosome, for example, can, you know, can, can control genes that upregulates those that make female mitochondria effectively work better in men. Um, so there's, there, there are biological ways around this, but the, the bottom line is um, there are different requirements on the system in men and women. But there are different requirements as well, depending on, is it in the brain, where the genes that are expressed in the nucleus is a completely different set of genes compared to those in the kidney, where the mitochondria have a different task and the same genes in the mitochondria have to work with a different set of nuclear genes with different requirements. So basically they've, they've got to be generalists. They've got to have a lot of slack that they can operate well enough in completely different tissues, completely different diets. You know, different human groups have very different diets and, 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 and different, diff, different um, you know, fat intake or, or, or calorie intake or whatever it may be, that puts pressures on, on, on mitochondrial functions, which can be very different. Different temperatures um, that you're operating at. Um, and, and especially that's even, even worse with things like flies that are cold-blooded. And if you change the temperature, then their, their whole body temperature changes. Uh, so so they basically, they have to be generalist. And that means that they, they can tolerate a fair amount of, uh, of change. And most of the changes that happen um, are tolerated. But some of them are not. Um, and and if, if you are unlucky enough to have a change that is not tolerated, then it, it affects all of the organs. It affects both the sexes. It affects absolutely everything. Um, and so, so then, you, then you've got a problem.
because it's so fundamental just to the process of living. I believe there's a concept called mother's curse, which yeah. is about, okay. So firstly, if you don't mind saying what that is, and then also why can't we follow the same logic of mother's curse and say that men should have drastically shorter lifespans or be far worse off? I mean, it may be this, what may be a why question. Well, men do have, men do have shorter lifespans um, by about five or six years, I think on average, something of that order. Um, so mother's curse, I, I've, I've actually kind of already described it in a way. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah. it's, it's basically because the mitochondria pass down the female line, so they're inherited from mother to daughter to daughter to daughter and so on, um, they become and any, any mutation which is bad for the daughter would um, be selected against. Whereas any mutation that is, is, is fine for the daughter, but bad for the son is not necessarily going to be selected against because the son's mitochondria are not going anywhere. They're a dead end. So there's no direct selection. There can be indirect selection. They can be, you know, if, if all your sons die, then there can be, you know, indirect forms of selection, but there's no direct selection on them. And so mutations that are effectively, if there are differences between females and males in metabolic requirements, and there are, and, and the, the, the mitochondria pass down the female line only, which they do. And, and some mutations may be harmless or even beneficial to women, but detrimental to men. Then selection will select for the ones which are harmless or detrimental in women. And the, 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 the harmful ones to men will tend to accumulate. There's no mechanism of selecting against them, no direct mechanism of selecting against them. So that's mother's curse. And you know, a lot of mitochondrial diseases, for example, are you know, two or three times more common in men than in women. A lot of diseases that have a mitochondrial aspect to them, like Parkinson's disease, are, are twice as common in, in, in men than in women. Uh, and, and men age more quickly and, and, and die earlier than women. And all of these things have a mitochondrial component uh, and may be linked in some way to mother's curse. So it's, it's real, but the... I, I, I use the word direct selection on several occasions. The, the, the genes in the nucleus can compensate. And so for the most part, um, most, most men don't have mitochondrial diseases and, and, and men live almost as long as women and, and, and so on. So mostly the, the fact that we inherit mitochondria that could be riddled with mutations that are not good for men are compensated for by genes in the nucleus that are specifically male, which effectively offset those disadvantages. And this is where the problem, if you, if you, then, um, if you, if you then go and, and, and breed with a completely different population that doesn't have those compensating genes in the nucleus, that's where this speciation effect can potentially come in. And these compensating genes in the nucleus, they don't detrimentally affect women? Are they relegated to the Y chromosome, for example? Um, yes, I mean there are. So, so there are, you know, there, there, there are differences in what's called gene expression between men and women, which is to say, um, the Y chromosome controls it, but there's only a handful of genes on the Y chromosome. But those genes say, you, 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 well, you, yeah, you act, man, you, 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 so you make your proteins, you, you Jeez. make proteins, you sh shut down. Um, and so, you know, it, it, biology is not about which genes you have so much as which genes are active now and a, and a specific stage of development and so on. Um, and, and, and so there are, you know, th 
in men, the, the, the genes which are expressed at a certain time uh, can be very different. Yeah, geez, it's it's staggering, staggering, staggering. Uh, the complexity does your head in. There's no question about yeah. that. So, okay, now let's talk about what's not complex. Well, maybe it's complex, but I remember <laughs> you made an analogy between a cell and the planet because one is charged uh-huh. on the inside. And, okay, can you talk about that? That's interesting. And then I wondered how far does that analogy go? Does it go to the galaxy I mean, level? I, yes, I, I mean, no, I don't think it would go to the galaxy level, but it, it um, and it, it is an analogy. It's It's not. Is, I mean, I, 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 I think you will be unwise to take it too far, but it's a kind of a beautiful analogy, and there's definitely some truth in it. I mean, a, a cell is, in effect, it's, it's this electrical charge on the membrane that I keep talking about. On the inside, um, it's basically saturated in electrons. We've got organic molecules have, have taken CO2, and they've added hydrogen on, and hydrogen is an electron and a proton, basically. Um, and, and so, and so in, in, in making organic molecules, we've taken electrons from the outside and put them inside. And so it's, it's reduced. It's, it's more reduced inside than it is outside. That's the technical term. And reduced is one of those terms that, that you know, anybody who's not a chemist backs away from immediately, tries, tries to escape from the room. Um, so oxidized and reduced. But in effect, there's more electrons inside than outside. Okay. And, and, and so there's more, more protons. Inside. It's more negative inside, yes, yeah, um, uh, and and so it's relatively positive outside, and there are protons outside. That's partly what makes it um, more positive outside, and we've got this we've got this charge on the membrane, which is basically the is relatively positive outside, relatively negative inside, and the and the membrane itself is extremely thin, uh, and and so we have a charge on it. Now the planet is basically the same, um, iron. Raw iron is, is, is electron dense, you might say. Most iron that people are familiar when rust when iron rusts, it's effectively losing electrons to oxygen. Oxygen stripping those electrons from it, and you, you end up with, with three positive charges on the iron. The iron atom itself ends up with three positive charges, and the, and the oxygen gets the electrons, and that has a negative charge, and, and you know, you have iron hydroxides and oxides and so on, and that's what rust is. Um, now the core of the planet is not rusty at all. There's no oxygen down there. It's got all these electrons sitting on the iron. Um, and, and so it's relatively negative inside. And the outside, the the, the atmosphere and the oceans and so on, um, because the gases that are coming from volcanoes and so on are, are such a high temperature, they tend to have lost their electrons and think you, you, get, you get gases like carbon dioxide. Uh, coming coming out, and, and the sun will also tend to oxidize the surface. The planet will would tend to, for example, you can the sun would split water. Water is H two O, and it can be split in effect into hydrogen and oxygen, and the hydrogen is light enough to escape uh, into space, and the oxygen will react with rocks like iron, and, uh, and you get rusty rocks. And this is more or less what happened on Mars. That's why it's the red planet. The oxygen that was formed from splitting water reacted with iron in the rocks, turning them rusty red color, and the hydrogen escaped to space. Uh, a lot of the oceans were, were lost that way on Mars. Um, and so you end up with a, with a kind of a relatively positive charge in the atmosphere and this relatively negative charge inside, which is basically the same structure as a cell. Um, and just as a cell membrane has uh, proteins that sit in it where you have movement between the inside and the outside, hydrothermal vents are the equivalent kind of conductance between 
between the 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 negative charge of the interior and the positive charge of the exterior uh, it's you have movement going through through vents connecting it up uh, and within these vents the pores inside the vents have got the same structure as well they're they're effectively inside they're filled with the material that came from inside the earth and the outside they're surrounded by the material that came from the from the oceans and so again we have a negative charge inside positive charge outside relative to each other it's not that there's an actual charge it's just that there's, there's a the, the electrons want to move from here to there now do you believe this to be a coincidence or that life is somehow mimicking cellular life is somehow no i i don't think it's a coincidence at all i think this is exactly how cells work and I, I, the, what this is doing is is there's effectively there's an electrical charge on the earth between the inside and the outside there's an electrical charge in the pores in these hydrothermal vents between the inside and the outside there's an electrical charge on cells between the inside and the outside they're all equivalent topology um, because they've all been formed from the same processes, you might say, because mm -hmm. the, the hydrothermal vents is where there is the mixing zone between the inside and the outside. So it, it naturally forms pores where we have this, the same charges forming. And those charges are more or less necessary to drive the reaction between hydrogen and carbon dioxide to make the organic molecules that make up life at all. Um, so I find it a beautiful conception. It doesn't mean it's true, but I, I find it beautiful that the, the planet has the same basic topological structure as a cell. Cells emerged from the, 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 the mixing zone between the inside and the outside, the, the effectively part of the circuit, um, and, and, and are driving copies of themselves by making more miniature Earths, if you like, um, by re reacting the hydrogen from the inside with the CO2 from the outside to make organic molecules. It's a, it's a planetary scale and it's a beautiful conception. Something I love about you is firstly, you write beautifully, and secondly, you are not afraid to ask why. And you mentioned this, yeah. that you're the most biologists don't like to ask the why question, perhaps because it teeters too much on the religious side and they would like to stay away, or for whatever reason, physicists don't like to as well. There's a famous or an infamous video of Feynman, who is castigating a fairly, at least in my opinion, well-intentioned interviewer for asking <laughs> right. a why question. You recall that? I don't remember that one, no. I mean, I, I love listening to Feynman, but uh, yes, he could castigate people. I thought it was a perfectly reasonable question. And Feynman said, yeah, but you shouldn't ask why, because so-and-so. So why is it that you don't mind asking why? And why? And, and simultaneously, why do others not like asking why? I, To be honest, I don't really know. I mean, it's partly I'm just confused, and I can't tell the difference between how and why. Um, and I think most biochemists are happy asking how, how does this system work? Um, and I can't quite distinguish that from, mm. <laughs> from why, why is it working this way rather than a different way? That's kind of almost another way of saying how. Um, and I think why is one of the most human questions and it's a childlike question. Children always want to know why. And, and, and I think it's the motivation for many people to go into science. And one of the things about science is it, it tries to stop you from being too naive and tries to impose a method on you to, to be objective and to not ask questions that are unanswerable in some way, to stick to the, I mentioned the art of the soluble before. We'll never know why, but, but we can't help asking why. And as I say, I can't tell the difference between why and how anyway. So um, it's very exciting asking why. And um, 
and, I, and perhaps it's more forgiven in books than it is in in in, in papers and 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 uh, you know the, the the more scientific literature. Books, I think, are a good place to ask why, um, and uh, and maybe that's why I write books in part because it, it gives me this outlet to wonder about things, to wonder about the world. And I, in the end, that is what science is. It's about how do we explain the world, which is to say, why is the world this way when it could have been so many other ways? I think why is it is in fact you know it's a question in physics. Why are the cosmological constants that way rather than some other way? That's the theory of everything <laughs> supposed to explain that. Um, it's a why question to, to to me. You could say how did it come to be that way? <laughs> I see the strengths of science as being what you mentioned, the focusing on what's soluble, and then the weakness is also that too. The reason why I say that, but I don't know how to solve this, so I'm just going to pose this as a question. If one was to go into a PhD program, but produced no papers in four years or produced papers with all negative results, then you would likely not be hired. And so yes. when you're a young person, when you're at your most creative, you're disincentivized for pursuing wild ideas that because most likely they won't work, but they may also lead to breakthroughs. No, there's a bit of a tragedy about that. It means that we we prioritize certain incremental progress yes. versus these substantial. Intuitive. I completely agree. And I, you know, I, I, my my lab mostly works on the origin of life, and and uh, you know, I have PhD students and postdocs and so on, and I face this problem every day um, that most of the results we get are negative. Um, what are we going to do? Uh, how do I, you know, I don't want my students to all fail to publish any papers, fail to get any positive results and finish their careers. That's the last thing I, I want for them. Um, so, so you've got to juggle. You've got to, you've got to aim for the lowest hanging fruit. You've got to keep the big picture at the back of your mind and try to think of experiments that, that will um, work in one way or another. Um, and 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 you've got to not forget about the the bigger questions behind it and keep on trying them. So I, I think you have to move people around so that if something starts working, and, and and one student's had two years of getting nothing, then you've got to give them something oh, where they're going to get <laughs> something now. Sure, sure, sure. Um, that, you know, there's it, it's it's difficult, and it's difficult not because of the scientific question so much because of the human aspect of people's careers that they need to be able to come out of it with with um, you know, a career ahead of them, something to look forward to. Why do you think it is that negative results aren't seen as worthy as, or as worthy as positive results? Because to me, just as an outsider, I see this as data, even if you were to say so-and-so doesn't work, great, now we know so-and-so doesn't work. There's the replication crisis in psychology, yes, particularly yeah. because people are incentivized to find affirming or new results rather than disconfirming. I think it's... Um... I mean, we, we've got a, a, a paper coming up. Um, it's probably going to be under embargo, but it's actually it's, it's out there as a preprint anyway. So I'll tell you about it anyway. It's um, exclusive to Toll. <laughs> uh, this, this is about how, how ATP is uh, formed. Now, we've, we found this is Sylvana Pinner, who uh, did her PhD with me, and she finished a while ago. And, and, and this is her big paper from, from, from this. And what she found was actually what she did was was effectively repeat some earlier work from a Japanese group um, from 20 years ago, and they had found by chance that um, a corroding iron electrode 
when they got ADP in solution around that electrode, I actually formed some ATP. And they, they, they looked into it and it turned out that ferric iron, which is the iron with three positive charges on it, um, will catalyze um, the formation. This had to be in the presence of something called acetyl phosphate, which is just a two carbon compound. Uh, would catalyze the, the phosphorylation of ADP to ATP, which is what our mitochondria are doing all the time. But instead of having all this molecular machinery like the ATP synthase, it's just happening in water with ferric iron as the only catalyst. So that's pretty amazing. So she repeated this. It took a while to figure out exactly how they'd done it. And this is very often the case. And for a, a period, I remember, we were concerned that it would not be possible to replicate it. Um, and then she succeeded in replicating it. Um, and that's, I, I find that increasingly pleasing, just simply to replicate other people's work because of this problem that sometimes, you know, it, sometimes it's made up. Sometimes, sometimes it's not as cynical as that, but it's for whatever reason, there was some aspect of chance that allowed it to, I, you know, to, to be able to replicate science, I think is the perhaps the single most important thing in science. And, and, and so it's very pleasing when you succeed in doing it. Now, she is the, probably the single most careful uh, scientist that I've ever met. She, she really uh, is, is amazingly precise. You could never see her error bars because uh, <laughs> the repeats were so, so similar to each other that there just really wasn't one. Um, but all, her, all the rest of her data was negative, which was very interesting. She, so, so it worked with ferric iron, but she tried with about 10 other different metal ions and none of the other metal ions worked. And she tried with about seven or eight different phosphorylating agents instead of acetyl phosphate, and none of those worked. And she tried with the other bases. So instead of ADP, she tried with GDP and CDP, so the other letters in, in, in RNA and UDP and so on. None of those worked either. So this is a paper made up entirely of negative data apart from one result, which had actually been done by someone else 20 years earlier and replicated by Sylvana. And the, uh, now, this is where negative data really comes into its own because it, it basically says there is something favored about ADP compared to the other bases and about acetyl phosphate compared to the other phosphorylating agents and about this metal ion compared to those other metal ions. This is favored chemistry. Why is it favored? We could come up with a mechanism for it and so on. But there, the negative data is effectively saying there's, there's a limited number of ways that this will happen. Um, and, and, and here's one way where it does. Maybe there are other ways that does as well, and we just look at those, some other metal ion that was not in our panel. Um, you know, you can have huge combinatorial panels, but we looked at all the metal ions that seem to have any relevance to life or any relevance to geochemistry, and this ferric ion was the only one that worked. Now, the problem, the problem there is that, imagine that ferric ion didn't work either then you would have a paper where everything was negative. Let's, let's just say that she didn't know about that paper and that she never tried ferric iron and that she tried all the others. What she would have had would have been a completely negative set of data, which would be unpublishable because um, nothing worked. Now, maybe if she tried some other irons, then it would have worked like ferric iron did. But if you don't happen to choose that one, then you'll never know. And so you can never rule something out. You can never, you know, if all your data is negative, it doesn't mean it, it can't work. It just means that everything we tried under the conditions that we tried it, it never did work. 
And at that point, we decided to pull the project because this poor PhD student's never going to get a paper out of it. So we, we explored it as well as we could. But the reality is we've got to move on. And so you've never disproved it, but you've kind of just given up trying to prove it now. Whereas the fact that someone had done it before meant that that was the one that she tried first, which meant that when we when the paper comes, now we have something which is really exciting, which is to say the reason that ATP is the universal energy currency is precisely that it works as prebiotic chemistry in water or by itself, just with one metal ion as a catalyst, and that works and nothing else does work, and that's why it's this way. So suddenly you've got a very sexy message, um, which in the end is based on the fact that someone else had found out something 20 years ago that was really a serendipitous discovery that they were not applying to the origin of life or anything else. It's just, you know, and, and, and science is built this way. Science is built on this kind of network of the efforts of different people doing different things for different reasons. And you, know, you try and put it together and you've got to, you know, juggle what works, what doesn't work, when do you give up? And, and, and very rarely can you ever disprove anything formally in a way that a physicist would understand, disprove, dis, you know, it's... it's you, that's why the positive results are important because they are they give you something to say, whereas the negative results don't give you anything to say. They just say everything we tried didn't work. It's possible that something else would have worked, but we don't know because we didn't do that. So you know, that's not it's not going to sell any papers. I'm not entirely sure about that. Well, you would know in your domain, but in physics, there's something called no-go theorems. So, for example, mm -hmm. there's the no-go theorem, which says that you can't have a graviton in 4D quantum field theory. And then that, then you're like, well, what's the hope for gravity? And then that's one of the <laughs> reasons why people think that there's ADS CFT correspondence to the holographic principle. Because, okay, there, there was a hidden assumption that wasn't stated by Witten, actually, and he's a careful person, which is that you can't have a graviton in your same three plus one quantum field theory, but you can in a different quantum field theory. Uh -huh. So you can have, that's why you have this universe, but then another border. Okay. But anyway, so a negative <laughs> result can still lead to breakthroughs. Like it leads to whole, there's ADS CFT is like almost a whole field in and of itself. The way that when I hear this, what I'm wondering is, hmm, why is it not the case that studies in different fields pre-register? I don't know if this is, forgive me if I'm speaking out of Well, term. I think a lot of clinical trials pre-register in that sense. So a clinical trial that is negative and, and there you're, you know, there is often funded by a pharmaceutical company or something who have some interest in not publishing negative data, but the, the regulators or the, other, you know, it's, it's, in, it's in the public interest that it should be published. And, and so this idea of pre-registering is, uh, is, is a good one, but there's a, there's a kind of a big difference. The, the big clinical trials um, are—they're are, very expensive to set up. They're very constrained in the way in which they're set up. They're only—they're—they're they're, they're kind of statistically—they've—they've um, been set up so statistically they can demonstrate a difference between a treatment or a different treatment or no treatment or whatever it may be. Um, so, so. They come up with you know they they come up with an outcome, and and the chances are it's going to be about as reliable a statement as you can make, um, but it's very unwieldy. It might take five years to do it. It might cost twenty million pounds or something. It's uh, where, whereas a lot of a lot of smaller scale science is much more maneuverable. You can you know if, if no PhD student would ever. No, and then, I mean, there's also this competitive side in science as well. Whereas, if you told everybody what you were doing, then they would do it quicker than you could. So there's, the, you know, there's, 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 there's some element in which 
people don't want to say what they're doing necessarily. I'm not sure that that's a good thing, but it is the reality. Basically, what I was saying, what I was thinking is that, hey, the negative results themselves, maybe there were 30 other people across the history of biology that have tried to formulate ATP using those metals that didn't work. But Silvana, your assistant couldn't, sorry, your PhD student, correct? Yes. Yes, your PhD student couldn't, didn't see the literature because everyone else said no. And so then she wasted her time too. And those 29 other people wasted their time. And I was thinking, well, then if you publish negative results, does that just bloat all the journals? Or like, is there another reason to not? Well, I mean, the journal, the journals are already bloated. I, I actually think that um, reading too much of the journals is not good for you, um, which is to say, when, when I have new students starting, very often they're encouraged to do a literature review, uh, and they'll often get bogged down because literature is overwhelming. There's so much of it out there, and, and, and it's written in such a way as to imply that the results that they did were decisive in some way. Um, and, and you'll come out with the feeling that everything's been done and there's really nothing left to do here. And, and um, well, I, you might as well despair at that point. Um, so it's actually much more productive not to know about any of that, to, to be deliberately ignorant and to just blunder around for a while uh, and, until you begin to see something. And then at that point is the time to, to access the literature. So has, have other people done this before? And the answer is often, yes, they have. We did this bit different, and we did that bit different, and they did this, but we did that, and so on and so on. And so um, you often end up getting different results to what they got. And you realize that, well, if we'd just taken for granted what they said and didn't do anything, we would never have found that. Uh, so, and, and, and if you find exactly the same as them, then that's kind of nice to know as well. And you'll probably try and drop it into a paper somewhere just to make it clear that this is, you have successfully replicated someone else's work. It's worth saying that you've done that. But, but very often, you know, a paper may close down an area by saying this is not possible when in fact they were wrong because they did the wrong experiment. And there's so many possible experiments you can do that so long as you don't close yourself down by believing them, uh, then you'll go on and find something new. So I, I would sing the praises of, uh, of blundering around in ignorance in the scientific undergrowth because it's the way to make progress. Let's wrap. I just got to use the washroom once more, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you Carl Friston's questions. He sent me some to ask you. Oh, I see. You know right. Yeah. That was very would interesting. That be, is that all right? Of course it is, yes. Now, this question comes from Carl Friston, number one. Is the increase in diversity and complexity of phenotypic forms a universal feature of evolution? And if so, is there any principled explanation for this? Um, I mean, the, the simple answer is yes. Uh, and I suppose the reason is simply mutations, um, which leads to diversity. So... Mutations are almost impossible to, I mean, all of, all of evolution is based on mutations and they have an enormous power. Um, this, the, standard, the standard way of seeing natural selection from a population genetics point of view. So I'm not a population geneticist, but I'm in a department of genetics and, um, and, and I work with some population geneticists who, uh, you know, worked with some of the uh, the, the, the founding fathers of the field, people like J.B.S. Haldane and, and, and John Maynard Smith and so on. Um, and, and that field 
kind of only lets itself see detrimental mutations, which is to say mutations that are bad for you in one way or another. Now, we know that there are neutral mutations. Most mutations are neutral, don't make really much of a difference. Uh, and there are a few beneficial mutations, but the ones that are effectively bad, detrimental, are, are, are the ones that the field of population genetics has historically really focused on because they are the ones that are most likely to be selected against. So neutral ones will be ignored by selection or almost ignored. Beneficial ones are very rare in comparison and, and, and detrimental mutations are very common. Um, and I find, this, uh, I find this quite difficult to get used to because I want to think positively about, about beneficial mutations. But I've become used to thinking in this framework and I'm shocked at how much power it has. So we have a paper out just recently with another PhD student of mine who's a physicist by training, uh, Marco Colnaghi. Um, and this is asking about uh, bacteria. I mentioned earlier on, bacteria have this metagenome where they, an E. coli might have 4,000 genes, but access to 30,000 genes from out there somewhere. Um, and, and they do what's called lateral or horizontal gene transfer, which is they pick up bits of DNA from the environment and they bind it into themselves. Uh, and various people have shown that this it's a little bit equivalent to sex, which is to say it's doing recombination. It's changing the gene set that you've got. And even if on average you pick up genes that are worse than the ones you've got, on average you'll benefit from it because you're generating variation that selection can act on. And if selection sees differences between individuals, then it will, it will select against the ones with the detrimental mutations and the ones that don't have them will, will, will flourish and so on. So basically selection is all about the differences between individuals and mutations generate differences between individuals, but moving genes around by lateral gene transfer amplifies those differences. And sex is a, an extraordinary machine for generating differences between individuals. And it uses the same machinery that bacteria use, but it organizes it completely different. And so there's this question, why? And the answer, I, I think we've, we've found part of the answer at least, um, I mentioned mitochondria before, that mitochondria allow you to have a much larger genome. Uh, and, and having a very large genome gives you a problem with preventing it from being degraded by mutations. Uh, and the way that bacteria prevent the genomes being degraded by mutations is picking up bits of DNA from around, around the place and patching it in. Uh, and it works for a bacterial-sized genome. But if you have a, a much larger genome, and let's say five times larger, um, and you pick up a random bit of DNA from the environment, in effect, <laughs> the chances of you getting the right bit is, is much lower. Uh, and really, the only way around it is to pick up large chunks of DNA from the environment. And then there's a problem that you, if, if you've got any, any sequences that match somewhere else in your genome, and this is more like the larger your genome, the more likely to have repeat sequences you are, the more likely to delete information you are when you bring this bit in and throw away your bit. So you end up with a system which is only set up to eliminate detrimental mutations, can account for the transition from bacterial lateral gene transfer to what's called meiosis and, and sex, where you, line, where you bring two cells together, they fuse together, they line up the chromosomes and so on. Um, so the whole, the whole thing 
is based on generating differences between individuals so that selection can act. So to come back around in a long circle to Carl Friston's question about divergence between things is driven by mutations and it's basically inevitable and it will be a property of any biological system that's got information at the base of it. All right, he has a second question. It's right. Carl Friston says, what is the role of sequestration and isolation in evolution at the molecular or cellular scale? Sequestration. Yeah, sequestration. Um, so I'm not quite sure what he specifically had in mind there. Um, I just sent you the message once more over chat. Yeah. So... Yes, I mean, what I immediately think of uh, when, 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 when I read sequestration is sequestration within cells, which is to say you have compartments, you sequester uh, the machinery for respiration within the compartment of mitochondria, for example. Now, I don't know if that's actually what he had in mind, but there's a lovely point about bacteria, which is that they are essentially indivisible. They don't have any sequestrated bits so there isn't a compartment which is responsible for respiration. There isn't a compartment which is responsible for you know, putting the genes in, for, for protecting genes and so on. It's a single open system with a mem- – no, it's, well, it's not a soup. It's actually got quite a lot of structure. Um, there's, there's a lot of interest these days in phase separations between effectively liquid-liquid uh, phase separations, and, and you know, the, the, the genes in, in a bacterial cell are phase separated from the cytosol, uh, and, and there's no membrane between the two of them. So the compartment is not a complete compartment in the same way, whereas the mitochondria have got a membrane around them, and it sequestrates the inside of the mitochondria from the rest of the cell, and that allows you to have enormously more power. It allows you to charge up those membranes from the inside. Let me just give one example to do with with, um, with, with sequestration and mitochondria. Um, when, when anybody thinks who, of, of, of mitochondria, they'll tend to think of a kind of sausage-shaped thing with membranes inside the cell. And, and there are all these sausage-shaped things in there. Uh, and, and that's not really how they are at all. Um, they will actually fuse together. They're very dynamic. They're moving around. They fuse together. They fission apart. They separate out. But a lot of the time, they're fused together into a giant network, uh, which which kind of fills up the volume of the cell uh, as a a kind of branching network in there. Um, And and you can think of it as power cables. This is a much more efficient way of generating energy because the, the charge is distributed across the entire surface of this network, um, and it's much better for distributing oxygen a- a- around because it dissolves better in, in, in the fatty membranes than it does in, in aqueous solution. Um, and, and so it's, it's probably the more efficient way of structuring a network to generate power. You can think of it as a power grid. But if you prevent it from splintering up again, then uh, the cell would degenerate and die. It seems that it's important for mitochondria to go back to being little independent sausage-shaped things. And if you stop them from doing that, then the system doesn't work. So why? Well, because with an independent sausage-shaped thing, you can sequester a, a copy of the mitochondrial DNA. So now what we have is a little sausage with a genome of its own, and that genome 
is it responsible for making sure respiration works in that mitochondrion. So it's, it, it generates a, a, an electrical charge on the membrane in its own little sausage thing. So now we have a relationship between a genotype and a phenotype. The genotype is the, that mitochondrial genome. The phenotype is the membrane potential, the electrical charge on this membrane. And if, if this mitochondrial DNA is damaged, it's mutated, and it can't generate membrane potential, then the, the cell machinery can see that and kill it at that point. So it's a quality control mechanism. Um, and if, you, if what you have is an open network with, let's say, you know, 500 copies of mitochondrial DNA in there, and one of them's got mutations, selection can never see it because it's effectively, its effect is, is, is hidden by the 499 other ones that are all contributing to the shared common phenotype of the electrical charge across this entire network. So you'll never notice it. So you can't get rid of it. So more mutations can happen. So, so the very fact that we all have mitochondria, which are still functional after 2 billion years of evolution, is because of selection on the mitochondrial DNA, which is because of sequestration of the mitochondria within the eukaryotic cell. And that is the difference between lots of E. coli, between a planet full of bacteria that basically can never get beyond bacteria, and the planet full of eukaryotic life, plants and animals and everything else. That's the result of sequestration of bacteria inside other cells with their own DNA. Now, I don't know if that's what he had in mind, but that's what comes to my mind when, 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 when you ask me about that. Sure. And now a near final question comes from user RH0D3Z, which says, this is much more of a technical question. What are Prof Lane's views on mitochondrial resperosomes slash supercomplexes in disease? This may be particularly important, seeing that they can omit complex two and bypass Krebs cycle pathways. Yes. Um, very Interesting question. There are actually some recently. There's uh, there's one super complex has been discovered with uh, with complex two in it. Uh, but mostly, whoever asked the question is quite right. Complex two is not normally part of it. Um, so for people who don't know, um, the, the the super complexes normally what you have, or normally how we're taught and what we imagine, is that we have four or five complexes, complex one, complex two, complex three, complex four, and the electrons pass from one to the next one to the next one and so on. Um, complex two is always a little bit on the side in that sense. Uh, they, they go from complex one to complex three, and then to complex four, then to oxygen. Um, now, the respirosome or the supercomplexes are where these complexes are brought together very often with a specific stoichiometry. So you might have uh, two complex ones and, and, uh, and one complex three and one complex four or various other stoichiometries of these things where you have fixed numbers of these things. They fit together in snug ways. And that until about 10 years ago, um, it was their existence was kind of denied almost. It, it was it's quite difficult to demonstrate that they really do exist, that they're really real. Now it's generally established that they are, and there's a lot of cryo-electron microscopy shows that these things are real. Um, but there's a lot that's still not known about them. Do they really speed up respiration, for example? Seems that they do. Um, but there's, you know, it's early days in, in, in this field. Now, the specific bit about complex two is part of the Krebs cycle. It's the only enzyme in the Krebs cycle which is anchored into the membrane itself uh, and which is effectively passing electrons directly, but it's excluded from these supercomplexes. Um, how that works, I don't know. Uh, 
there's a I, I think it's the, the, I mean there's some very strange factors here so 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 complex one is the only one that that oxidizes NADH I, mean, I don't want to get too technical here but it's the only one which is really capable of spinning the whole Krebs cycle so if complex one is is deficient or broken then the Krebs cycle can't work properly um, if it's part of a respirosome, it's likely to be operating at a faster rate and it's likely to spin the Krebs cycle faster than it would otherwise be able to spin. But it also depends on the structure of the Christie and all kinds of other factors. So there's a, there's a kind of macromolecular scale of organization of mitochondria that we don't know a lot about yet. Uh, and it's definitely important. I mentioned fission and fusion of mitochondrial networks and you know all of this is, is linked. It's a very dynamic system. Uh, so, the interesting thing about complex two is it pumps fewer protons than complex one. If you, if, you, if you put electrons into complex two, and then they go into three and then four, you can pump a total of six protons. Whereas if you put them into complex one, they can pump a total of 10 protons. So you may think then that there's more power, if you like, but it's actually, it's not power so much as gearing. So it's like being, if you're using complex one, it's like being in, in a high gear on a bike. You can be in 10th gear or something and you, you can coast very easily along a, along a flat road. But if you get onto a hill and you want to go down to a lower gear uh, and a lower gear in the mitochondria, if you're putting, if you're putting electrons into complex two, effectively uh, you've got almost the same amount of power, which is to say the, 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 energy that's released when the electrons that go into complex two get through to oxygen is not quite as much as when it's coming from NADH, but it's nearly the same. But that total energy amount is only pumping six protons rather than 10 protons. So you've got nearly the same energy pumping fewer protons, and that means you can pump them against a higher potential. It's, you can go uphill now. You can effectively um, switch down to you know, second or third gear or something and, and, and keep on going. Now, how all of this works itself out in terms of super complexes and Christie structure and everything else, I don't really know. It will have a feedback effect on the Krebs cycle because the Krebs cycle needs to go through this step if it's not going to increase succinate levels, which leak out. And that's an epigenetic switch, which switches genes on and off. This is it's hardly been explored. I mean, this is a fantastic thing about science. We, in some ways, we seem to know so much, and in other ways, there's this kind of jungle of, of dynamic mitochondria that are changing shape, that are forming crystals, that have got an organization, they're probably generating electromagnetic fields, that are forming super complexes, that are, have, they, you know, if, you, if you've got a closed crystal structure and you're pumping protons into it, there's a, you know, the, the limit that you can generate you can generate a higher membrane potential if you put succinate in at complex two than if you put NADH in at complex one. So you have this, the, the, and we can hardly measure any of Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. 
What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories. This, the differences in membrane potential has only hardly been touched on um, between one Christie and another Christie. If you've got a super complex or you don't have super complex, as if complex two is part of it or not part of it. it you know, there's a, there's a world out there that we've barely discovered and it's a world frankly of physics this is this is about charge and it's about pushing against charge and it's the power and it's the energetics of the whole thing so it's 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 not conventional biology but this is to my mind where biology needs to go thank you professor and we didn't even get to talk maybe next time we can talk about if we if i'm so blessed as to be with you again thank you to talk about the reverse krebs cycle and aging and <laughs> It will be a pleasure to come back. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah. Do you mind ending by reading the poem from the last chapter or the last bit of your book? I believe it's a short uh, poem, if you have yes, it near you. Yes, I'm happy to do that. Do I have a copy of the book anywhere near? Um, I have to go and get one. Just give me a moment. <laughs> I don't know that this will make sense to anybody who hasn't read the book, but it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful poem anyway. Uh, I don't know how much sense it would make, even without the context of the book. Yes. Uh, so this is Like Most Revelations by Richard Howard. It is the movement that incites the form, discovered as a downward rapture. Yes, it is the movement that delights the form, sustained by its own velocity. And yet it is the movement that delays the form, while darkness slows and encumbers. In fact, it is the movement that betrays the form, baffled in such toils of ease until... It is the movement that deceives the form, beguiling our attention. We suppose it is the movement that achieves the form. Were we mistaken? What does it matter if it is the movement that negates the form? Even though we give, give up ourselves to this mortal process of continuing, it is the movement that creates the form. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Professor, for being with me, with the Toe audience for for so long. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you for sticking around for two and a half hours, maybe, maybe longer. I appreciate that. I hope that it was enjoyable to you. Again, there's the website theoriesofeverything.org. That's a place that you can go to support Toe if you're interested in that. Like I mentioned in the intro, there are several benefits. You get an ad-free audio version. You get that sometimes 12 to 48 hours to a few days prior to premiering on YouTube. You get discounts to the live events when we finally do have them. Sometimes those tickets may even be free. So for instance, I'm looking into doing something with John Verveke and Ian McGilchrist in person. This is all extremely tentative right now, but this is a plan to do in the future. Carl Friston in London, live in front of an audience is another example. There will be exclusive merch and so on. There's 
quite a few benefits. You can text me if you like. There's a number, at least we're testing that for about one week or one month or so. Again, that's theoriesofeverything.org. Thank you all for watching. It's great to see you in the live chat. I appreciate all of the love. Thank you. Thank you so much. The podcast is now finished. If you'd like to support conversations like this, then do consider going to theoriesofeverything.org. It's support from the patrons and from the sponsors that allow me to do this full time. Every dollar helps tremendously. Thank you.